I had no idea when I stood up what was going to happen. I literally thought, like when you talk about the testimony, Brett, I mean, I thought the the science, the, the review that we had done was going to be warmly embraced. Like I actually literally was trembling. I thought like ivermectin would be deployed in the systematic prevention and treatment of COVID worldwide and that things were going to be different and better. And, um, and then my same thing that happened to you. I mean, my career, you know, I, I lost three jobs. I'm out of academic medicine. My academic career is over. And I also have a new, um, a new livelihood and I'm actually quite happy about it, but the transition was difficult, but I didn't know that was going to happen. I, I didn't volunteer for that. Hey folks, welcome to the dark horse podcast. I have the pleasure and honor of sitting this morning with Dr. Pierre Corey, who many of you will know from the COVID pandemic writ large and from Dark Horse. He made a previous appearance on Dark Horse, which was taking off like wildfire before YouTube removed it and struck our channel. And in some sense, Pierre, I think, is it reasonable to say that um, that podcast allowed you and me to mutually ruin each other's careers. Oh, that would be the understatement, Brad. I think you're, I was already in it, but you launched me like right onto the front lines of the battlefield. And, you know, we've, we've taken some hits and suffered some casualties, but we're, we're still standing. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, I would say we, we have lived to fight another day, uh, an achievement about which I am quite proud. Me too. And uh, it has been an honor to fight alongside you, Pierre. It's, it's, um, you have been one of the, the very bright spots in a very dark period of history. Uh, from well, perspective. I, I, I don't know. It's a very moving statement, Brett, because it's, I know you've been through a lot. And I, in some ways, I feel like you almost got it worse than I did. I mean, you, you really, um, I don't know. I think you were more well known. And so there's more people to attack you. And yeah, it's, it's been rough. But, I wouldn't change it for the world, and I and I thank you for everything you've done, and and we've been, we've been just trying to do the right thing. That's all. Well, I think I think we both, uh, you know, took some heavy fire in our own domains. I almost, not even almost, I feel worse for people like Paul Merrick, who, mm. um, you know, is a colleague of yours, who I didn't know until you pointed me in his direction. But, you know, you clearly have, you, you are motivated by your anger at what was done to, to patients and to citizens during the pandemic. And it activates the fighter in you. And yeah. you and I are a little different in this way, but I have a similar reaction to it. Guys like Paul Merrick, I feel, you know, this was a good doctor who, mm -hmm. he was not supposed to be thrust onto the front line of some uh, battle in which he would be accused of all kinds of vile things, right? This was a, yep. a guy who cared deeply about his patients and he needed to be left alone to take care of them. Oh. Um, so as bad as what happened to you and me is, I feel worse for people who didn't train for it. Yeah. You know, I like kind of, you almost contrasted me and Paul, and I think it actually would be a fair con, like, you know, I fight with my fists and he fights with his heart, you know, and he he's really... You know, he, he I, th I think he has a lot of sadness and I, he has, I think we have both have a lot of anger, but it, yeah, I think he's more, yeah, sad and tender about it. And I, I'm just really angry. Really? Well, I appreciate your anger. Um, before we get going here, let's just frame this a little bit for people who might be uh, 
joining this discussion late who maybe weren't there for the initial Dark Horse episode and don't know what we're talking about. You came to my attention as the most prominent voice. I hate to use the word advocating because mm. advocacy is not the role of a doctor nor of a scientist. And it's, it's a term that's pointed at us frequently, but you were the leading advocate for the idea that we had tools at our disposal that we were not using during the COVID pandemic. I saw a now quite famous piece of testimony that you gave a quite impassioned speech to the Senate. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, about ivermectin and as you probably remember heather and i had our own trajectory with mm -hmm. uh ivermectin where you know initially we believed what we had been told that this was a drug that maybe had initially shown some promise but that scientific study had proved it was ineffective mm -hmm. and then when we just scratched the surface of that claim we discovered all kinds of shenanigans and there's a moment on Dark Horse where I literally think what I said was, what the fuck is going on here, right? There was wow. too much bullshit surrounding ivermectin to, for this just to be the normal fog of war. Somebody yeah. was monkeying with our ability to even understand what it might be useful for. At which point I found uh, your testimony and anyway, uh, the die was cast, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of framing the discussion, you obviously have a new book out about the, uh, you want to show your book? Yeah. So I have it right here. So it's called, uh, oddly or aptly, The War on Ivermectin. Um, the subtitle is The Medicine That Saved Millions and Could Have Ended the Pandemic. Excellent. Now, um, you asked me to blurb your book, which I was thrilled yeah. to do. And I, I think actually that blurb might help people understand why, you know, many people have the sense like, what does it matter now? And it matters a great deal now that we understand what happened to ivermectin, even if the potential utility of it is now greatly reduced by yeah. the endemism of the virus. Could you read, could you read that blurb? Yeah. So um, I just want to say how honored I was that you wrote, um, you know, support for the book and yours was one of the most moving. So Here's what you wrote, Brett. The COVID-19 pandemic changed the world. Among the most profound changes was a coup by public health bureaucrats against doctors and the traditional practice of medicine. Medical professionals and scientists were told how to think, and those who bristled at the new order or at the broken logic it dispensed were ridiculed, censured, and cast out. There was to be one and only one answer to the pandemic, a pair of unprecedented, barely tested therapeutics portrayed to the public as safe and effective vaccines. The only hitch in that plan was that these novel therapeutics couldn't possibly get FDA approval fast enough. Instead, these brand new shots would need to get emergency use authorization, which, because of the danger of experimenting on the general public, required there be no available alternative. That requirement is why an all-out war has been waged on ivermectin, a drug that safely and effectively treats and prevents COVID, but isn't worth money because it's no longer under patent. If the truth of ivermectin were ever recognized, it would bring the full criminality of global COVID policy into stark relief. The war on ivermectin tells this shocking story in vivid detail from the vantage point of Dr. Pierre Corey, a heroic and highly decorated ICU specialist who spent every minute fighting on the front lines of this dirty covert war waged by pharma 
and its governmental captives against doctors, patients, and all the citizens of Earth. Yeah, um, that does encapsulate the significance of, of your book, of what happened regarding ivermectin. And I would ask anyone who is listening to this podcast, if you have not confronted the evidence of malfeasance surrounding ivermectin, please put aside what you think you know, because the the amount of money that was obviously spent to create a false impression surrounding the utility of ivermectin with respect to COVID, and it has two different kinds of utility, which we will talk about, mm. but that vast sum that was clearly spent and the tools that were brought to bear to demonize anybody who saw or even glimpsed the truth here um, is in many ways the the deepest layer of what I think of as um, kind of a, a red onion pill, right? It's not a red pill. COVID is a red onion pill because there is layer after layer mm. and the deepest layer involves um, a, an unholy alliance between governmental functionaries, members of the press, tech platforms to make consideration of ivermectin unpalatable and to portray those who somehow escaped that labyrinth uh, appear like quacks. I mean, including you, a highly yep. decorated doctor, and by far not the only one on this side of the question, to portray you as lightweights or, uh, as Sam Harris famously mused, possibly schizophrenic for your <laughs> belief that there might be some value to this drug. That, um, that edifice that was created really tells the tale of what has happened I think, to civilization, right? Yeah. This was a story that illustrates the reason that we are losing the ability to govern anything well. 100%. You know, Brett, you know, you just talked about that unholy alliance, right? And you just listed, right, the governmental entities, uh, the media, um, the social media platforms. And, you know, I, I want to add to that unholy alliance or really what that alliance is built on, because th this is what's been exposed to me. Like, I, I think the, the, the deepest and most powerful lesson that I've learned is, and I, I don't know how I want to say this, but it's the deep rot at the core of medical sciences, which is to say, really at the level of the clinical trials. And, um, you know, prior to COVID, um, I... I had a general implicit faith and trust in, in the institutions of society. Um, Brett, I'm sure you were much more worldly than I was before COVID in terms of what the media, you know, the narratives and the propaganda in the media. But I, I mean, I believed in the New York Times. Um, I believed in the high impact journals. I thought the best science and scientists published there. Like if you got published in New England Journal of Medicine, that was like, you know, that's like the pinnacle of your career. And I, I, I thought only the best studies made it. And what I discovered in COVID, and which is really strange because this has been well documented for decades, right? So, you know, I always quote um, Marsha Angel, the Dr. Angel, who, who was the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine for 20 years. And, you know, she stepped down in 2001 
to write a book about how pharma was literally running the journals. And I mean, that's 20 years ago. By the way, uh, Brett, they don't teach that in medical school. There's, there's no class in medical school which is about the scope and the scale and the influence and control of the pharmaceutical industry of literally the medical sciences. And, you know, that unholy alliance, like all of that, you know, and, and what my book is structured around is it's really it's a case study in how disinformation is practiced. And literally, you know, as defined um, according to the disinformation playbook, right, which was really invented by the tobacco industry. And, it's, and these are tactics they use to counter science that's inconvenient to their interests. And they've been, you know, all industries practice disinformation and they all use the same playbook and it's using that alliance, right? <laughs> they control agencies and media and now social media. Um, I would say what is unprecedented, Brett, is, um, you know, when I look at the history of media and propaganda, I mean, it's been going on for a couple of hundred years. I mean, there has been huge, you know, newspaper barons who owned, you know, you know, multitudes of papers. And so there was always control over narrative. But now... The, the ownership, right, of media is so consolidated and concentrated. I, th I can't remember the, the exact stat, but it's like, I think five or six companies own almost all media, or at least mass media. And, um, you know, but the media, in order the media and the agencies to do what they did, they needed the science to support that narrative of the horse dewormer, ineffective. And I just want to finish this point on that is that, you know, I have a chapter in the book called The Big Six. And the reason why I call it The Big Six is because it was literally six trials that were unique. Okay, so they were unique in terms of the fact that they were large, heavily funded, done by highly, I wouldn't even say respected, but you know, very uh, accomplished researchers. Um, but they were the only six out of, for instance, all of the early treatment trials, they were the only six where literally every investigator on that trial was drowning in conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry. And they were heralded as the top, as like the answer to all answers, right? These were the most rigorous, high quality, randomized controlled trials. And each of those six were published in high impact journals. And they were the only trials that generated massive media campaigns, right? Every time they were published, front page New York Times, LA Times, Boston Globe, all around the world, ivermectin found to be ineffective. And, and so I, I guess my point is that Unholy Alliance is founded upon the, 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 the science, the, the little conduct of science. They manipulated trials both ways. They, they can create trials designed to show something doesn't work. They can manipulate trials to show that it works and safety and efficacy and all that. And we, and we saw so much. It wasn't just ivermectin, right? I mean, we saw it with hydroxychloroquine. We saw it with the vaccines. I mean, they just, they literally control science. And so whatever they conclude in those high-impact journals is what everybody believes. And that that was astonishing to me, Brad. I, I you know, listen, I, I'm an old liberal, right? And I, I, you know, big pharma was always a four-letter word, right? No one ever trusted big pharma, right? I mean, their, their history is... is profoundly uh, actually criminal. But what I didn't know, you know, I always thought they were manipulating things at the edges. They might hide a few things that, you know, that was inconvenient to them. I, I didn't know that they run the game, like literally run the whole game. Yeah. So you, uh, you mentioned the question of whether I might have uh, been a little more worldly. I think I probably was, but only because I went through a different ringer 20 years ago with 
the work I did as a graduate student on what I thought was a purely abstract evolutionary question with, I didn't realize that I was stumbling into a realm that had uh, medical and therefore monetary implications. And having seen what took place there, whatever uh, naivete I might have had, um, vanished. I think I looked. This at was your telomere work, Brett. I think yeah, we exactly. Talked about it once. Yeah. Um, I'll give a. Uh, lots of people who are familiar with the podcast will have heard this story before. But the short answer is, what I discovered was that there was a flaw in the model animals, specifically mice and rats, that we were using to do the all of the early testing. You know, a lot of the scientific work and the early safety testing for drugs and that the flaw in question, which I believe arose uh, accidentally, but it biases these animals in the direction of being extremely resistant to damage. That is to say they can repair almost any level of damage that doesn't outright kill them. And so if you give them a very toxic drug that destroys cells, it may actually cause these animals to live longer because it interrupts the cancers that they are preternaturally prone to. Hmm. Now, I don't know, I don't think pharma understood that until I put it together. But I then, there's a story about the attempt to prevent my work from getting published, but I did ultimately publish it. I pointed directly to the implication for uh, drug safety. Hmm. And that was 20 years ago. Literally, as far as I can tell, the only thing that has happened is a lot of uh, backroom double dealing in which the pretense that there's no problem or that if there was a problem, it has been solved without any discussion of how that was done, right? That has been sort of uh, spackled over this giant hazard. And because the flaw in question, A, seems to be likely explanatory for things like the Vioxx uh, debacle, mm -hmm. uh, similar cases with uh, Fenfen, Gleevec, um, erythromycin, all of the NSAIDs, uh, because it seems to be explanatory of something in which human beings are injured and killed, and because there was no interest, what I thought as a young graduate student 20 years ago hmm. was that even if there was something broken about our system that would not have been eager to take care of this problem, that the embarrassment of not taking care of it would have been so profound that it would have been forced to address it directly. Mm. And when I saw zero movement and when I attempted to raise this issue in the press, and it was like a bell that didn't ring, right? It was like a dream where there's a bell and you're trying to ring the bell and you hit it and there's not a sound. That experience told me there's something the physics of the universe that I am now in do not add up, right? And I believe that what happened is pharma realized, oh, we've got mice that bias safety tests into making drugs look less, less toxic than they are. Well, you'd have to be crazy to fix that. Mm -hmm. That's why I think we're still stuck with it. But anyway, that did, um, let's just say, raise my awareness about the possibility of very major things being wrong. Let me ask you a question about that, Brett, because, you know, you, it's intriguing. So basically what you learned <clears throat> with your <clears throat> inconvenient science is that they have the capacity to suppress and or ignore, right? Or, or just basically somehow make that not known. Did they, did they actually do any studies that 
conflicted with yours? Because that's the other thing, right? All they need to do is inject doubt, right? So they yep. can do a study showing that you're wrong, right? They can find the opposite conclusion to what you conclude. And that, that's kind of what I see them as the most effective way of, of neutering inconvenient science. Well, I think a couple things are true. As is always the case, these things have a conspiratorial component you know, the Jack's lab, the place that is the source for the vast majority of the mice used in scientific experiments and drug safety testing, has somebody, since my work was done, who is nominally in charge of mouse telomeres, right? But one gets gobbledygook when one tries to chase down what that actually means. Are they monitoring? Is there some record of the length of the telomeres in the colonies? You know, can we look at what the current state is? And one does not get a straight answer. So at some level, there has to have been a meeting or meetings in which they decided a strategy to uh, not upend their business, not yeah. have to redo all of that safety testing. On the other hand, there's an awful lot of emergent behavior among scientists and others who know which side their bread is buttered on that looks like a conspiracy, but doesn't it didn't function like one. Mm. So, um, for example, if you know in what way the mice are misleading, that gives you a mechanism to predict the outcome of experiments that would otherwise be unpredictable. Mm. If you can predict the outcome of experiments before you run them, then you can look like a genius and you can publish important papers in the New England Journal of Medicine or wherever else because you look like you're just excellent at science, where instead what it really is is you know where the bodies are buried and how to interpret the yeah. bias. I get um, that. So anyway, a lot of people, I believe, in the cut, cutthroat world of uh, medical science, once they realize what's going on, do they want to kill their careers by trying to call attention <laughs> to it, or do they want to ride that wave? And those people may never have been brought in on any conspiratorial conversation. They're just... Um, getting ahead. Yep. Um, yep. So no, I I don't want to detract from a discussion that should be about your book and about the war against ivermectin. But uh, the one thing I did want to say is you're talking about the degree to which pharma yes. uh, not only influences, but has effectively fully captured journals, medical schools, medical associations, uh, governmental regulators, all of the pieces of the puzzle necessary to create a totally fictional world. Yes. Which is what they tried to do during COVID. Yes. And so I call this the pharma game. Mm -hmm. And they, and I think part of what people don't get is, yeah, you know, 20 years ago, we all knew pharma was a problem, right? And like you, we all believed, oh, it's probably altering the science enough to matter. Yeah. Not writing it out of whole cloth. Right. right. Exactly. Um, so we're looking, what, what we're really looking at is the evolutionary product of the world we all thought we lived in, mm -hmm. right? Pharma having too much influence over regulators instead of it is the regulators. It is effectively the puppeteer and it is moving these puppets around to create the impression that science is being done to ensure the safety of the public. It's not true. 100%. Right? It creates down. the impression. Creates the impression. Absolutely. Creates the, and it's worse than nothing. 
right? Because the thing is, if you didn't have regulators, right, if all you had was your doctor and a bunch of pills, your doctor would be in a position to notice and to discuss with other doctors, hey, I don't think that pill is safe. Mm -hmm. Maybe stay away from that one. But the impression that is created through the journals and through this phony scientific work um, actually causes, I'm sure it causes doctors to override their doubts about safety, right? How could it not? Maybe I'm seeing, you know, maybe the pattern I'm seeing isn't really a pattern. Maybe it's sampling error. And I know that because, hey, here's a large study that seems to suggest exactly the opposite. Well, that, that's exactly it, right? I mean, the doctors, you know, when, when I think about medicine, I mean, not really my career, but if you look at the history of medicine, like, you know, some of the seminal books from the 70s, I mean, the pharmacopoeia at that time, the amount of medicines that we were using in disease, I mean, it was very small, right? Now you have huge amount of medicines, right? All coming through pharma-funded trials and all that. And your, your point is, is correct. I mean, the average doctor, you know, they essentially, they have an implicit faith and trust into that, those institutions, right? The journals and, and the, 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 the people who do the studies. And they think that there's an integrity, there's a code of ethics, there's, you know, all of these things. And they'll believe what they're told. And what's shocking to me, Brett, is how much they so easily believed that was great, you know, so like one thing, let's say you talk about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We know that doctors are too busy. They don't really read studies critically. Um, they'll read the abstract. First of all, even to read studies critically, I mean, you really have to say like, what didn't they put in this paper? Like what is missing? Like there's so much things that you find out when you really think about a paper and, you know, all these anomalies, like they'll present certain data in certain papers and leave it out of others. You have to ask you why they leave it out, you know? And so, but doctors, they read abstracts and, you know, and especially an abstract from the top medical journal in the world. I mean, that abstract is thus truth, right? It's almost like one of the, you know, the 10 commandments from the mountaintop, right? And, and, and how much they, they just, you know, like, I guess I use the example of, like, for me, like, this unveiling, right, of the scope and the scale of this capture and control, you know, was slow. I mean, it was slow and iterative during COVID. I mean, I, I was learning these, I was finding these astonishing and really disturbing facts of these things that they were just divorcing themselves from even pragmatic science or even, you, you know, it, it, these were policies divorced from science. And I was like, how can they do this? How are they getting away with this? And I will tell you the, the day that I remember being really the most upset and disturbed was the day that the FDA put on their website that there's no evidence to support checking antibodies before vaccination. You know, when, when the vaccines came out, like my, my good friends and colleagues, like who were internists, who had offices, right? Their patients were coming to them for guidance around the vaccine. And I mean, the, I mean, their initial gut reaction was like, take a history. Did you have COVID? <laughs> right. That would be one way or check antibodies. And so like one of my colleagues, he was checking antibodies. And if you had a positive antibody, you can skip the vaccine. But here we had, you know, a governmental agency telling the entire country of doctors that this thing called natural immunity, which we've which is as an evolutionary biologist, Brad, I think you can speak about natural immunity more than most. I mean, this is literally how we've survived, right? Uh, through history and viruses and, you know, organisms. And suddenly some words on a website and the entire country just goes with it without critical questioning, without a discussion. I mean, there was some stuff around that, but like 
How did they cancel or disappear natural immunity with one page of a website? I mean, we yeah, were fascinating well, people who just recovered, Brett. I mean, you know, I, I the worst story I've heard, not the worst. I, I, I don't want to qualify it like that. But I had a patient uh, once about a year ago. She was um, a pharmacist who worked at a hospital. And she told me that the hospitalists at that hospital were vaccinating COVID patients upon discharge. Wow. And yeah, that to me was a wow moment. I said, wait a second. You know, because there is a, some precedent to that, like with flu, like people come in for some other reason during the flu seasons and, you know, the doctors will offer them a flu shot because they're captive right there. It's like, hey, you're here. We'll give you a flu shot. So flu shots kind of, you know, is like kind of a checklist upon discharge. So like, I get that. But here you had patients admitted for COVID, survived COVID, still probably a little rocky. Not all of them are well, but they're ready to go home and you're going to vaccinate them. With an old protein? That was the other thing. It was like late 2021. It's like, guys, we're, we're using a two-year-old protein. And anyway, your, your answer that when you said, wow, that, that was what I said that day. I just, I literally was like, what is going on? The world has gone mad. Well, it's incredibly foolish for multiple independent reasons, right? On the one hand, and, and I guess the, the thing that's really frightening about this is anybody who's gone through medical school ought to be able to piece one, if not both of these together. Mm -hmm. One, the history of vaccine safety is not a clean record until Ooh. 2020. There are lots of cases where vaccines that were promising did not get through safety trials because they were dangerous. And there are cases in which vaccines that were released were withdrawn because they turned out not to be safe. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea that vaccines are safe is dead on arrival. That is not a true idea. Right. Yep. If vaccines are safe, it's because we're good at the safety process. In this case, you had so-called vaccines that were a highly novel in their mechanism of action, really unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And B, the safety testing at best was truncated by time. And there is no way to accelerate safety testing because part of what you're looking for are long-term effects. And so there is no way to know that there wasn't something lurking five years out, right? So a doctor should be interested in taking anybody off the list of candidates that they can take off without a cost. Even yeah. if these vaccines were highly effective and there were no harms that had been spotted, you should still want to vaccinate as few people as you have to because the potential of hurting somebody in some way that we didn't yet understand was something you couldn't take off the map. So natural immunity, that should be like, oh, what a relief. We don't have to take any risk with you because you got through it. Your immunity is going to be better than this vaccine, which provides one antigen. It's not broad. It's, it, it's yep. almost stupidly narrow. It's an old antigen, right, from a variant that is no longer circulating. So thank goodness we can take you off the list and not expose you to that risk. Every doctor should have seen that. And then on the other side, the part that's maybe harder to spot is you're dealing with a layered set of complex systems, what happens when you take somebody who has just recovered from the current circulating version of a disease 
and you inoculate them with something that triggers the production of a closely related antigen while their mm -hmm. immune system has not fully stood down from the infection it just beat, right? Yep. Does that make them more susceptible in the future? Does it make them less? Does it cause the immune system to think that it has failed to fight off the infection and to go into some kind of overdrive that we don't understand? There are a dozen ways that could go wrong. It's super complex. And, and, and then the related uh, question, which we've explored a little bit, is what, do you, what happens when you give someone a vaccine for that narrow old antigen which is now quite different, right? It's mutating. It's not the right. And we know a little bit about that with flu because that they've always done. You know, they're always a day late and a dollar short with the flu vaccine. But this was, this is even more. I think it's even more mutagenic than the flu. I mean, this thing was rapidly changing. Rapidly changing. I think in part or in large part because of the vaccination campaign yeah. itself, which creates an almost absurdly concentrated evolutionary pressure, which drives the virus around. Um, but. In any case, the obvious caution that should attend medicine when confronting a novel therapy, right, was simply not there. The desire, it was like a religious desire to vaccinate people rather than a, hey, we've got no choice. We've got to do a lot of vaccination, but let's figure out who doesn't need it, right? You know, you, Brad, I mean, you're making the way you lay that out, right? It just makes so much sense. It's pragmatic. It's prudent. Those are all principles that you would think a doctor would employ, a physician would employ. And, and let's be fair, though, Brad, you know, what you're the reason that you just articulated this, there's, there's a percentage of doctors who did approach and I think thought of it that way. Some, a very tiny number, stood firm and stuck to those principles. But if you look at the the population of physicians in this country, I think there was a large percentage who just believed what they were told that they didn't have critical thinking. But the one that's most troubling is that percentage, and I don't know what percentage that is, who knew this was wrong and were coerced and co they realized they couldn't put up resistance. If if you did, you were gonna be shunned and vilified and even unemployed. Right. I mean, if if you were in your office and you worked for an employer and you started telling patients, come, you don't need the vaccine, you don't need the vaccine. I mean, you're not around long. And, yeah. and those who thought it was the right thing because all the, the Fauci's and the experts and all the societies were telling you to vaccinate everyone. So you thought you were doing, you know, the best science. <laughs> I think there's a lot of physicians who literally thought like because the experts said so it's the right thing to do. Um, the best scientists and the best minds in the country in medicine are telling us to vaccinate anything that moves. Um, so let's do it. But th there was a proportion, I think, that thought like you, Brett, and, and they went along anyway. That's true. Um, for the purpose of understanding the ivermectin story, I would just simply within the confines of this conversation, I would like to give them a temporary pass for reasons I think will become clear to you in a second. Okay. It is hard, and this has been hard for me as somebody who got ejected from his career and was forced to start another and then had that one uh, interrupted by YouTube in part because of the part podcast. <laughs> by me. I'm teasing. With you, which was so dangerous that YouTube decided uh, to, to move against our channel. Um, but as somebody who has faced, who has been driven now 
from one mechanism to another for earning a living and keeping a roof over my family's head. I have a hard time judging people that I don't know and whose circumstances I don't understand for responding in disappointing ways to intense pressure in their professional realm. I want them all to stand up, but I understand that most people um, aren't built for it. And I also know that some people, you know, what would I do to save my own children? Yeah. I, I know some people face that. And, and that's that's totally a fair statement. And you're right. I mean, I, not that I should be more forgiving, but more understanding in a way. And I get that. I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's not easy. <laughs> no. It's not easy. And, and here's the thing, though, Brett, like the things that you did and you stood up for, when you did them, though, you didn't know what the consequence, like, I didn't nope. know what was about to happen. I mean, because you know, here, here's the example, like, you know, when I meet people, especially in the, the bubbles and circles that I travel in now, I mean, generally, I meet supporters, right? People who understand, they follow our science, they believe in our guidance. And, you know, people will say things to me like, you know, thank you for standing up, your courage, they'll use words like hero. And I'm like, uh, the actual truth is, I had no idea when I stood up what was going to happen. I literally thought, like, when you talk about the testimony, Brett, I mean, I thought the the science, the, the review that we had done was going to be warmly embraced. Like, I actually literally was trembling. I thought, like, ivermectin would be deployed in this systematic prevention and treatment of COVID worldwide and that things were going to be different and better. And, um, and then my same thing that happened to you. I mean, my career, you know, I, I lost three jobs. I'm out of academic medicine. My academic career is over. And I also have a new um, a new livelihood, and I'm actually quite happy about it. But the transition was difficult, but I didn't know that was going to happen. I, I didn't volunteer for that. Right. <laughs> Had I known, would I have done it differently? I'd like to say there's no way I would have done it differently. I would have done the same thing, but I, I really didn't know. And, and, and when you talk about these other doctors that I was kind of like being quite critical to, you know, I do think they're in a different position because they know fully well what the what those consequences are, right? Because they've seen what happened to their colleagues who stood up or stood out. And and so, yeah, I think that's a different calculus than-, than Well, no, I, I'm, I'm going to stop you. I know you're trying okay. to agree with me and I'm going to disagree with you because Please. I'm not saying they shouldn't have stood up. And you're right. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. There was no guarantee. And frankly, I want to live in a world where people do what you did. I want to live in a world where people did what I did and in such a world, we'd be better off, right? Yeah. What we face now is a collective action problem where people who keep their head down do better and people who stick their head up are punished. And that mm -hmm. is a world that belongs to pharma. So mm -hmm. I'm not intending to make some kind of excuse for people. I'm just saying I'm hesitant to judge people, especially if I don't know their circumstances. And for this conversation... I just want to acknowledge that not everybody, maybe they all should, but not everybody has what it takes to stand up in the face of what you and I both know firsthand was an insane level of coercion and pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that I want to grant them that temporary uh, exemption here from what I think is their moral responsibility, actually, I will just go back and say, we are talking about violations of the Hippocratic Oath and the Nuremberg Code. So this exemption doesn't get you very far, right? Those things, 
those are sacred principles for good reason. But the, um, the reason to grant a formal pass is this. It surprises me, but it is true, that people have are more awake to what took place with respect to the so-called vaccines than they are to what took place with um, repurposed drugs. And I would also tack on uh, vitamin D, yep. which was barely mentioned during the pandemic and should have been front and center. Yep. Um, so people get that something happened to them with respect to the vaccines. People get that something caused their doctor to ignore their natural immunity, caused their doctor to ignore the innate immunity of their children, that something wanted them vaccinated in spite of the fact that nobody could have known these things were safe. And in fact, on closer inspection, they knew they weren't, right? So the fact that people are awake a bit on the yep. so-called vaccine question, to me, should have them say, now, wait a minute. If I can see how far the reality was on the so-called vaccine question, only a couple years out, right? The distance between the narrative that we were sold and the reality we can now see, then I know that there is something massive distorting perception in this area. Mm -hmm. And my question really, with respect to many people who have gotten pretty good on the vaccine question, but still can't see what happened to ivermectin is why are you so damn sure of yourselves? Shouldn't what happened on the vaccines cause you to throw out everything you think you know and start over analyzing, right? If you think randomized controlled trials proved that ivermectin is ineffective against COVID, are you willing to look at what was inside of those trials? Because it's shocking, mm -hmm. right? This is the same story as the vaccines. Yeah. I, so, you know, that's been... That, that's been one of the, that, that is a really quick, a really great question, right? So yes, in, in people's awakening or, or awareness now of, of what happened around the vaccines and the manipulations and suppression of the data, the coercion, and, and clearly that there was an incentive to have those things successful, right? So, you know, why aren't those lessons applied to, like you said, other areas of science. I think it's a very natural thing. So, so the other thing I think of it is like literally the mirror image of the vaccines was repurposed drugs. And, and I'm, I'm just going to call someone out as, as the most shining example of what we're talking about with this inability to see past the vaccines is, is really Alex Berenson. Yep. Um, I think he is the most glaring example. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk with Alex. Like we were on Steve Kirsch's podcast where Steve was really excited. He wanted us to have a debate. And, you know, we tried to get Steve to come. Now we're just going to have a discussion. And it was a very professional discussion. I was very polite. And I was, you know, I was trying to teach Alex. I was like, Alex, you're, you know, and I, and I, and I, I commended him, Brett. I said, listen, Alex, your work on the early calling out of all the anomalies and aberrancies and, and, and all of the, really the fraud from the trials and to the suppression of data and the misrepresentations of the efficacy of, I said, your work has been great. And I think he's made a big, really positive impact by getting people to be really cautious and questioning these vaccines. And yet he comes out and he holds up those big six trials, which are just reeking of fraud and conflict. And he holds them out as like the pinnacle of science. 
And he goes on Joe Rogan. He says, ivermectin is no better than a placebo. And I, and I talked, I said, Alex, I don't understand why you don't see that for the vaccines to be successful and those that wanted successful, it was required that they destroy the science around repurposed drugs. Like it's not a complicated concept, Brett. I mean, that lesson that you just gave as an example of the vaccine, that lesson should guide us in questioning all of those things. And the incentives to destroy repurposed drugs were the same incentives supporting the vaccines, and they use the same tactics. Just one, they wanted to, you know, the narrative that they wanted to create is that it's safe and effective. And the other one is that it's an ineffective horse deworm. But they, they were they were two hands of the same uh, body. Yeah, it, it, it just makes no sense to me, right? As soon as you discover that a wobble in a planet's orbit implies some other gravitational body, right? Now the point is, okay, what else does that explain? Mm -hmm. And the, the desire to shortstop the, uh, you know, it's like the scales fell halfway from their eyes, mm -hmm. right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Look, at worst, let's say ivermectin was a fiction, had no relevance to COVID, which one should not expect for multiple reasons. If you, Once you actually understand that this is a drug that is actually... Uh, surprisingly broadly useful against uh, RNA viruses, you know, the the presumption should go the other way. But nonetheless, let's say that it was a total fiction. At worst, you throw out what you think you know, you go back to the the evidence, and you arrive back where you were, because the evidence holds up. Like, what have you, what have you lost? You've, you know, in fact, you're on a much more secure footing, having thrown it out and arrived at the same conclusion twice. Whereas if you actually do this exercise and you say, well, what would have to be true for these trials to be wildly misleading about the utility of this particular drug? Well, they would have to be either built to fail in mm -hmm. some subtle way, or they would have to report evidence in a misleading fashion that it created a false impression of no efficacy. Actually, both of these things are in there, right? They're yeah. right there to be found. Now, the fact that it took incredibly smart people weeks to unpack what actually the methods meant in order to figure out how the trials were built to fail right? That's a story in itself. No method section should be so complex that it takes a group of people, you know, weeks to unpack what was actually done. The method yeah. section should be straightforward. Yeah. Um, but, you know, let's take, for example, the um, bizarre, and as far as I know, as yet completely unexplained BMI cutoff mm -hmm. for the uh, increasing dosage of ivermectin. Ivermectin is a drug that um, is dosed based on body weight. And of course, COVID is a disease in which the hazard of the disease goes up spectacularly with uh, excess body weight. Yep. And so in order for, you know, so basically people who are thin are at much less risk. And so you would expect a drug like ivermectin to be much less useful because they're not going to get sick. 100%. Um, and so you would expect if this was a highly effective drug, you would see it in people who were obese. Yep. And what do you find in the methods? Very subtly, you see the methods, if you read them uncarefully, they have a decent 
accelerating dose that goes up with BMI. But cryptically, there's a cutoff at which for no reason they stop increasing the dose, which means it specifically underdoses the patients who are likely to be sickest and therefore creates the impression that the drug is not effective. Brett, that that point you made, like for someone like you or me, you know, when I see that, like I don't even spend, like I know exactly what they're doing. Right. I mean, there is no rational explanation. So never before. Right. So ivermectin, right. It's used uh, for decades and given out across continents, right. To, to rid the world of parasitic diseases. It also happens to be an antiviral as we know, but you know, in the decades of use, never has anyone heard of a weight limit to dosing. You dose it per kilogram body weight period. And it distributes to the fatty tissues. You have more fat, you can need a higher dose. Right. And suddenly in these trials in COVID, and I I like how you say, like, I don't think it's even that subtle. What I find is when you read the methods, it's just simply stated. It's not like, you know, they give you their rationale or they just say, you know, this drug in the intervention group, it was drugged according to this schedule and uh, anyone above, let's say 85 kilograms, 95 kilograms um, received that top dose. And that it's just stated there as if that's normal. So a casual reader will just read and say, okay, they, they had an upper weight limit to dosing. I'm sure it was because of safety, right? Safety, Brett, is that, is that what it was? <laughs> you know, but that's what someone would presume that there's no nefariousness there. When I saw it, I was like, what is this weight limit? And then you have to ask yourself, then why would they put a weight limit? If, if it's an extremely safe drug, it's dosed according to weight, why would they do it? And, and there's only one answer to that. Right, which is what you said, is that it's a brilliant way of mitigating or trying to disappear the efficacy because it's it's going to be strongest in the obese. The, the highest risk is where you're going to see the biggest benefits, and it it's not that subtle, Brett. Well, I don't think <laughs> it's not that subtle. I mean, again, you know, your point about uh, doctors reading abstracts. This is scientists too, and it's a, an expected effect of the competitive nature of these disciplines, right? People are trying to get the biggest bang for their buck and there's diminishing returns in reading the details of the papers. So people economize and Mm -hmm. it's wrong because the bodies are buried elsewhere. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a a mentor of mine uh, used to joke, he would say, may all your abstracts come true, right? (laughs) You know, are their own, uh, their own species. Yep. Um, but in this case, especially, you know, and Alex Berenson, how could somebody who understands as much on the vaccine side be as easily duped as he's been on the repurposed drug side, right? It's just not that hard, right? If you go look and, you know, frankly, the work has been done, right? We now do have a, a very good description of exactly how these trials were built to self-sabotage. And then I mean, the irony of ironies here, of course, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, is that you've got pharma, which is expert in making trials that make drugs look better and safer than they are, and expert, it turns out, in making drugs look less effective and less safe than they are. And it sets up trials to fail, designed to fail, and the drug is good enough that they don't actually fail. The efficacy is still reflected in these trials. If you look at the data, if you look at the presentation, it's quite different. And so, you know, how much of this do you have to see before you have the equivalent of my what the fuck is going on moment? 
Yeah. Right. As soon as you see that, it's like, well, I can't tell you what the truth of it is, but I can certainly tell you I don't trust this paper. Right? I mean, that that point you just made, right? Which is, you know, I and I'd like to laugh at some things, although it's just this topic's not funny. But you know, they're expert at manipulating trials. I mean, they 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 design trials with predetermined results, and that's described in the disinformation playbook. I mean, tobacco did it. I mean, they've they've been doing that for decades. But you know, with ivermectin, I found it fascinating because here you have. The top guys who know how to do this, right? Pharma's literally writing these protocols for them. They put every little trick in the book to try to bear the efficacy. And ivermectin was so good. They had a lot of trouble disappearing that signal, Brett. And you know that. Mm -hmm. They had to resort to stuff that, you know, you normally don't see them have to resort to. And I, I think my favorite, not my favorite, I don't want to say favorite, my, the most potent and brazen example was the NIH Active 6 trial, mm -hmm. where they had to do something which is considered a never event, which is changing the primary outcome in the middle of the trial. And they changed it, right? They were looking at a difference in illness, I think symptom severity um, at day 14. That was the original protocol, which makes sense for viral illness. You want to see who gets better by day 14. And in the middle of the trial, without providing any data for why they did it, they switch it to, no, we want to compare how people are feeling at day 28. And yep. in the actual paper, you see that at day 14, there's a profoundly statistically significant difference in favor of ivermectin. So if you're a trialist there and your you know, farm is running these agencies in these trials, suddenly your researchers are telling you, uh, Houston, we've got a problem here. We have a profoundly statistically significant benefit that we've identified at day 14. What are we going to do? The answer, let's change the endpoint to day 28 where that's statistically significant. By the way, it's still beneficial there. It just wasn't statistically significant. Yeah. It wasn't statistically significant, which somehow, you know, because the press is undereducated with respect to science, yep. uh, journalists will translate into no effect, which is absolutely an completely unjustified interpretation. Um, but, you know, I, I have been persuaded by my own scientific journey that the philosophy of science matters tremendously and almost nobody is educated in it because it's boring and seems like a different field and all of that. And this is a case where the the alteration, the moving of the goalposts in the middle of the study mm -hmm. is, it renders the entire exercise completely scientifically invalid. Invalid. Brett, in if I did that in a trial, let's say I did a study. Imagine the, 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 the speed of the rejection from right. the journal when I actually submit my paper and they say, they see that I changed my input, moved the goalpost in the middle of conducting a study, they would say, I'm sorry, we can't publish this. You've, you've committed a scientific, you know, fraud. a trial, a trial wrong. Like these, it's these fraud. invalidate, I'm sorry, Dr. Corey, this invalidates whatever you found. So At go the level of evidence, it invalidates it. At the level of behavior, it's fraud. Yep. Right? Fraud. fraud. You are, the thing that makes science work 
is the directionality of the observation, right? You have a pattern, you observe it, you hypothesize a possible explanation, you formulate a test based on the predictions, and then you run the test. It has to go in that order or there's no science in it. If you knowingly take the prediction and you modify it to match the data, you have taken something that is anti-scientific and you you have dressed it as if it was science, which is not only is there no information in your study because we don't know where else you did that, but the intent evident in your modifying, you're moving the goalposts mid-study is to deceive, to lead people to believe that the evidence says one thing rather than what it actually said, right? You are required, even if you think your study uh, found sampling error, right? To the extent that you are interested in publishing this study, you have to publish what it actually found relative to the actual predictions, which in this case come in the form of this particular measure that was then altered mid-study. 100%. It's fraud. You described the scientific method, right? And you talked about then tested. And here there's some rules on how you test things, right? You come up with a study design and you say, I'm going to compare these two things in this way. And that's what you got to stick to, right? But here, here I want to go a little further, right? So you, you called it out. First of all, it's anti-science. It invalidates the study. I like how you called out the behavior is fraud, right? The, the act is anti-science and invalidating. The behavior is fraud. But let's go further there. That study sailed to publication in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is literally... I think it's number two or number three on the highest impact medical journals in the world. Published that study where they move, where they changed the endpoint in the middle. I mean, and there was really very little mention of it. It's not even a limitation. And of course, no one talks about it in the media. No one's like, oh, uh, JAMA just published a study, but they moved the goalpost in the middle. And and, and, and what's even more crazy, right? And I, I'm sure you've seen the table, right? Because Alex Marino did such good work on, on dissecting these trials. I mean, his work is unparalleled um, in the stuff that he's done. And he's not even a physician. I mean, he's a polymath. He's brilliant. But I, I mean, I, I would... It, the comprehensiveness and detail of the work that he did. I mean, I learned a lot about, I, I learned way more shenanigans in these trials than even I could pick up. Yep. I learned it from Alex, right? And, but, you know, Alex, you know, highlighted the table that's published in the actual, so it's so brazen where they show the difference at day seven, day 14 and day 28. And you can see the statistical significance. You see that it was highly statistical significant at day seven, day 14, and then whoops, just falls under statistical civil day 20. So it's screaming from the paper in the Journal of American Medical Association. There's no discussion of it. And so that that's gonna that that to me would be like exhibit A in a courtroom of evidence that pharma runs these journals. A hundred percent. And I would just point out, like let's say, all right, you've recovered from COVID and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, All right let's get you vaccinated, right? So let's suppose you know what it means that you've recovered from COVID and you realize, hey doc, how much do you know about the safety of these novel vaccines? And what happened to natural immunity? We know that that's the best immunity. What's more, if I look at these vaccines, there's no way it could possibly compete because the antigenic choice is so narrow and the antigen is 
uh, of a variant that's no longer circulating. So you, you hear, okay, your doctor is advising you to get a shot that can't possibly be safe and cannot possibly compete with the immunity that you've already got. And the same doctor is telling you, um, yeah, if you get COVID uh, or you're exposed to somebody who has it, ivermectin doesn't work. At the point that you discover that your doctor is in some way downstream of some distortion that has caused them not to look out for your best interests with respect to these so-called vaccines, at the point you know that they're needlessly exposing you to the risks of a novel therapy, when that same doctor tells you that actually repurposed drugs are not effective, then you should wonder whether the very same distorting influence has caused them to miscall that one as well. And what I see almost across the board is people assuming that the embarrassing revelations surrounding the so-called vaccine campaign uh, are the limit of what happened. Mm. And for some reason, the sophisticated position is, yes, but ivermectin didn't work, which uh, is obviously not. Yeah, like that was the ceiling of the corruption and fraud was the vaccines, right? And, and they, they don't see how much further and deeper it went, right? Um, and I don't, I don't think they understand. Well, I mean, this is really the core issue. Yeah. Um, they do not understand what the pandemic would have looked like if we had played differently with respect to repurposed drugs and vitamin D, right? If we had applied those things, um, the, what would it, you know, look through pharma's eyes. Yeah. At the level of how profitable this would have been, it was spectacularly profitable, profitable as it went down. How profitable would it have been if we went on a campaign to correct people's vitamin D deficiencies and had applied ivermectin as a prophylactic when people were exposed to COVID and then treated them with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine if they came down with COVID, what would the pandemic have looked like? I feel like I want to raise my hand and be like, call on me. I want to answer that. You know. <laughs> All right. You, you do. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, Brett, we know the answer, right? It would have obliterated those massive marketplaces that opened up with this pandemic. I mean, overnight, you had a marketplace in north of $100 billion, right, uh, for the pricey uh, patented pharmaceuticals and the vaccines. I mean, first of all, it would obliterate that market. That, that's one thing. That's the, that was what they were trying to avoid. But we know it would have changed the face of the pandemic. I mean, we've seen it in places that, that, that use repurposed drugs. I mean, it was a very – that you didn't have hospitals filling. You would have very few hospitalizations, very few deaths, uh, very little morbidity. It, 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 would have, it would have changed the entire experience of this pandemic, and it would have saved millions of lives. And I, I want to say something about vitamin D because you brought it up because I think it's relevant um, to – it's highly relevant to me in my book. So, you know, what, because there's an anecdote that I talk about in the book, and I think you may have heard this before, but, you know, what happened after my testimony, you know, here I am thinking I'm bringing forth this news to the world that's going to be warmly embraced. And, you know, everything goes sideways real quick. 
and I couldn't figure out what was going on, Brett. Um, you know, within two days of my testimony, the Associated Press calls for an interview. I mean, me and the team are so excited. We're like, yes, the Associated Press is going to bring forth this news to the world. And you know what happened. I mean, it was a complete hit job. You know, I spent 20 minutes of my life that I'll never get back explaining to this reporter, providing all of the data, all of the evidence. And then what gets published is this attack on ivermectin. They don't even discuss ivermectin. They just lump it in with another medicine to be debunked like hydroxychloroquine. Like it was bizarre. Like they don't even talk about it. Okay. So this hit job happens and everything continues to go sideways for months. And, you know, I knew that there was the big hands of pharma was everywhere. I knew we were, you know, we were fighting probably some corruption. But it was only in March of 2021 when I received an email, and I received an email from a guy named Professor William B. Grant, and he's one of the top published researchers on vitamin D in the world, spent you know decades studying vitamin D and publishing on, on its impacts. And he wrote me this two-line email. He said, Dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he put a link to the article, which kind of you know, structured the book. It was called The Disinformation Playbook, and it's written by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And I clicked the link, and the article's really well written. It's very simple. It's this graphics, and they just outline the tactics that pharma does to, to bury science that's inconvenient. And I'm looking at, and the tactics are named after football plays. You know, it's the fix, the fake, the diversion, the screen. And they give examples of each play and how how it comes about. And I read it, and it was like, like a light bulb, like it's click suddenly, Brett, like in an instant, everything I'd experienced in the prior three months, you know, the retraction of my paper after passing peer review, like that we knew, we knew that we, we, we were like, that's Bill Gates. I mean, we just knew that, you know, uh, or, or pharma. I mean, when, 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 our, when my paper got retracted after passing rigorous three rounds of peer review, and then suddenly that is like, nope, we're retracting. Um, you know, we knew the, the fix was in, but, you know, the, the disinformation playbook article was much more broad. It showed you all of the tactics that they use. And I, when I'm looking at the plays, I'm like, I saw that today. They're doing that to us, you know, this week. That happened three times last week. And like, I just saw everything made. It's like having the teacher's addition to what was going on in COVID. I felt like I, and, and, and from that point on, from that day on, I saw the world through a very different looking glass. And I, I just could see everything. And by the way, those tactics and what they do, that's not just ivermectin. Right? Or even yeah. medicine. It's like it goes into many other topics that are in the news. And so and so anyway, I wanted to bring up vitamin D because not only was it this research on vitamin D, but like let's talk about that. Like so what I've learned about vitamin D science since then is that like and, and I, I learned it because I saw an article, I think it was in Forbes or in Time magazine. The he headline was like, stop with the vitamin D already. That was the headline. And it was this long article basically reviewing all of the summary analysis of what vitamin D has been tested against, many, many different diseases and illnesses and cancer. And this article basically said that is in, in these meta-analyses, when you combine all the studies of vitamin D, it essentially doesn't work for anything. But the reality is the literate, the published literature on vitamin D is so heavily polluted with manipulated trials that yeah. they've essentially been able to cancer cancel the efficacy of vitamin they've been doing that for decades i mean there's a massive body of literature which concludes 
that it doesn't work, right? Because for every positive trial, they will create one to show it doesn't work. And so all you need to do is inject out or neuter or have conflicting evidence. And then everyone can determine that in the end, it doesn't work. And, and you know, that vitamin D thing, you know, I, I remember thinking in the beginning, like, we need a national campaign. We need billboards out there. Go to your doctor, check your vitamin D level, put, you know, you, we needed printed protocols for how much to supplement in the newspapers, right? I mean, yep. any rational public health official would have done that. And even if there were any doubt about how well it works, right. and I don't think there could be any reasonable doubt, but even if there were doubt, it's effectively harmless up through some incredibly high dose. Yep. And so the point is, you know, if it was a placebo, fine, you could make an error. But the, the evidence that it was profoundly useful is overwhelming if you know how to look at evidence. And I would also point out the implication of the story you just described, that there is a vast sea of phony literature mm -hmm. designed to create doubt about the efficacy of vitamin D. If you just simply evaluate that and find out that it's true, that you have a lot of studies that seem to cast doubt on vitamin D and that those studies are built to fail, for example, then the implication is that pharma in a general way, because vitamin D is so general in its implication, is willing to make the population sicker because it sells remedies. 100%. Right. And that is a very troubling fact. And really, you know, I think everybody who's listening ought to ask themselves this question. That's a very provocative statement that pharma might be willing to make the population generally sicker because it creates remedies. It's, it's, and the answer is that's a challenge, right? If you found that that was not true, then it would cast doubt on your and my ability to understand evidence and to recognize patterns of bad science. And if it is true, then it casts doubt on all of the things that you think you know, because studies tell you that, that because that, you don't know how far the influence goes. That I want to talk about that, Brett, because that's literally what happened to me, like intellectually, philosophically, morally, like, you know, I, I feel estranged from medicine now and from many physicians. I, I you know, you know, when you think about how long they've been and, and the way you, you the way you characterize it, right? So you're literally putting forth this notion, which is really disturbing to contemplate, which is that you have an industry that is in the business of corrupting medical evidence so that you don't take something that can protect your health because they want you to develop more illness so that they can make money. They need more customers, right? That's the simple way of saying it. I mean, you put everyone on a good dose of vitamin D, you are going to shrink your customer base and for numerous diseases. And so you have an industry that's capable of working directly, you know, violating public health and the health of our community and our society, and that they've been doing this for decades. And then you have to also ask yourself the question, Brad, is, what else have they done this with? So if, if you want to believe what I'm saying about vitamin D, then you're going to ask, what else have they destroyed on, on over these decades? And I mean, vitamins are one thing, right? They've destroyed vitamin C and vitamin E and A and, you know, but lots of therapies have been destroyed like that. And so then you're left with the unfortunate realization that the modern practice of medicine is highly curated around, you know, a discrete set of quite profitable interventions. 
things that don't make money or that protect health, you know, are not going to be taught and they're not going to be disseminated. And so the last thing I want to say on that, Brett, because it kind of it refers to what you were saying earlier about, you know, realizing, you know, if, you, if you've suspected that something wasn't right around the vaccines and you've gone further and, you know, you listen like the, the, example, the example of that doctor you gave, you know, who's telling you to take the vaccine, even though you got over COVID. And then he's saying, don't take those medicines because they're ineffective horse dewormers. And, you know, like, wow, this distorting influence has now kind of captured my doctor and my doctor's not making sense. I want to say what, what, how I see that now. So where I go, Brett, you know, the places I'm asked to speak and lecture or conferences that I go to, a lot of them in the medical freedom movement, um, the people who come up to me are nothing short of terrified of going to their doctor. Many Mm -hmm. of them have abandoned their primary care practitioners that they've seen for even a decade or two, because they'll go into the office. He's wearing a white coat and he's not making sense. He's not making sense and he's telling them things that they know will directly threaten, if not maim them or their health. And and so how do you go to someone who you've always sought counsel to who suddenly doesn't make sense and is giving you advice that is directly contra- contrary to your interest and your welfare? Yes, this – I have been – I feel like I've been on a – lonely quest to make a particular point. And I think there's something about the terminology that is just, it's an unfamiliar thought pattern. And so I have trouble getting people to see it. But the point is, medicine and public health are not synonymous. Nope. Right? And public health is predicated on something true which is that there is a population level set of questions surrounding health, right? That if you optimize for individual health, you may end up with results that at the population level uh, are suboptimal, right? With respect to, for example, um, epidemiology and immunology, right? The ability to get a large enough percentage of the population inoculated with a good vaccine that prevents a communicable disease, you do not want people um, necessarily optimizing away small risks to their own personal health if it creates a large number of cases that didn't need to be, Mm -hmm. right? Now, I have become skeptical that any governmental authority can be trusted to adjust the difference between individual health and population level health in an honorable way. And Mm. I think we all have a sacred right to protect our individual health, especially in a landscape with as much obvious capture as there is in ours. But nonetheless, analytically, there's a question to be answered about what we can do at the population level that is worth doing to improve health uh, over the largest number of people. However, what happened during COVID, as I said in that blurb to your book, was a coup by public health authorities, and in my opinion, deeply corrupt public health authorities that were not interested or were delusional about what would maximize health across the population, a coup against doctors who practice an ancient art 
On its best days, medicine is a science, but on an average day, it's an art in which people who are expert in looking at ill health uh, deploy a limited set of tools and advice to increase the well-being, health, and longevity of their patients. Sounds good and to me. What happened during COVID was that doctors were effectively forbidden to do that. They were forbidden to develop their own understanding of how this disease progressed, who was at most risk. They were forbidden to deploy what they knew about the hazards of unknown therapeutics, right? They were told what to think, and they were threatened if they departed from it. Yes. And that coup has not been reversed, right? The pandemic may be over, at least formally declared to be so, but the damage done to the power of doctors, the damage done to their credibility and the damage done to their right to do what they trained to do is ghastly. And it leaves those of us who need doctors, which is frankly pretty much everybody at some point, in a very bad position. I experienced this fear. I don't I don't want to go to a doctor no. who I know recently allowed themselves to become a puppet of pharma and I don't know, you know, they literally couldn't tell me if they had realized that they had been making terrible mistakes for 3 years and they're over it, how exactly are they going to convey that? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean you you summarized the issue and I mean it's you know that the fact that we we do need doctors, we're all going to need a doctor. And, you know, those that are free from that oppression and coercion and control, you know, we still at least have a private practice system in this country. And they're, uh, you know, I like what Peter McCullough has said, you know, I think he once said that, you know, literally those that were saved from COVID who were treated with these repurposed drugs, it, he estimated, I don't know where he came up with this number, but he basically said it's the community physicians that were in private practice, not working for health systems. He thinks there's about 500 of them uh, and, and literally treated many hundreds of thousands of patients. Um, and But that's there's not enough there to serve the needs of our society. And so you're, you're still left with a, a medical system with a history because that's the other thing, Brett. So let's say people realized what their doctor became in COVID, right? Which is used the term of puppet of the pharmaceutical industry. Well, then you have to ask how long have they been a puppet of the pharmaceutical industry on, on how many disease models and around how many medicines. And then that's where I was trying to tell you before, like what I'm learning now, Brett, so I'm in private practice. I have a telehealth, um, practice and we I, I specialize in the treatment of vaccine injury and and long covid uh, which are very similar conditions and you know i, I take fees I, I accept fees i don't accept insurance so i'm literally i have that autonomy that's required and i will tell you given the complexity of these syndromes and this disease you know i have to employ a whole range of different therapeutics and one of the cool things about that right is i'm learning so much i feel like i'm i am retraining in medicine but now i have this really rich uh, network of colleagues that i collaborate with that come from different disciplines not allopathic medicine i have some brilliant osteopaths and chiropractors and naturopaths and even homeopaths and i'm learning about 
all of these different therapies that three years ago, if someone had said to use, like, for instance, something as simple as hyperbaric oxygen, I would have been like, that's nonsense. You know, people claim that it works, but so I'm, I'm, I have, I, I'm actually able to deploy a number of different therapeutic approaches that no one would have ever taught me if I was still in the system. And, but really to break free from being that puppet, not only does medical education have to change, it has to be much broader. Um, than allopathic curriculums allow for. Um, but you're not going to get that if you go, I mean, medical schools in this country are literally controlled by the same entities we're talking about, right? So, but I, I'm just saying there is, let's try to maybe put that as a positive thing. Although there's not enough folks like me and and others um, to meet the needs of society, but I think that is the solution. I, we, we do need, we got to, we got, we have to re- gain that autonomy, that freedom for critical thinking, using risk benefit and alternative, you know, analyses to the decisions and what we guide patients to do, rather than literally being coerced to following a protocol that's applicable to everybody. You know, like there is, and then that's the thing, the complexity and the difference of patients, their risks and the comorbidity, you know, medicine is a real, uh, can be really intellectually challenging. That's actually what makes it fun. I mean, I love thinking through cases and problems and, 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 you know, so when you talk about that puppet or that coercion, you know, I do like to mention that prior to COVID, I had never in my career been told I couldn't do something. I couldn't use a med- Like, basically, you know, prior to COVID, Brett, the risk was on you as a physician, yeah. your malpractice. So if you did something stupid, if you did something crazy, didn't have good evidence for it, or had some risks that were unacceptable, right, that's on you. Right. So, you know, you do something wrong by a patient, um, you're going to bear the responsibility. But here, not only the responsibility was relieved, but so was the autonomy. Right. So they, they just told you what you do. And then they, then they held you. Um, they didn't hold you liable for it. Right. Because you were following the guidelines. And so. Well, it's, it's worse than that, though, because. OK, they told you the advice that you had to deliver and the therapeutics that were allowed. And they forbid you to prescribe off-label and they interrupted the ability to prescribe off-label at the pharmacy if need be, right? But the now that I hear you describe it from the doctor's perspective, the echo of the Milgram experiment mm. is glaring because what I also, maybe this is what you were getting at and I'm just slow to catch up, but... The doctor who's been told what they're allowed to prescribe and been told they have no choice but to defend, to dispense this advice, to dispense this interpretation, right? That doctor is absolved also of the horrifying experience of injuring or killing yeah. a patient through an accident through a misprescription, drug interaction, whatever. The point is, if you've been told what to do, if you've just become a medical cog who's dispensing Anthony Fauci's wisdom about how we're going to address this thing, and somebody dies, I think you would, you know, what choice did you have? You dispensed the advice, the patient died. That wasn't, you didn't choose the advice. You were right? acting so, in accord with the best available science and knowledge and recommendations from authorities. I mean, what what could be more impe unimpeachable than that, right? You right. were doing the best science out there. And so you're right. And, and that is, you, you know, there's a little nuance you brought up there because, you know, we know that these vaccines are incredibly toxic and lethal. And so there are physicians who 
by doing that, they they know that they've had patients. I've talked to physicians who know that the vaccine was the proximate cause of death in their patients. And yes, you're right. It does somewhat absolve them. Like they don't have, they don't have to carry that guilt of having made uh, an error in judgment because they, by definition, were using the best judgment available or yep. supposedly, I guess. They were, they were, something was packaged in that way. Um, but allow me to redirect us here a little bit. I, I'm getting something from, from your description I'm like relearning a lesson I knew, but I'm seeing it from a, a different spot. There's a, there's a principle I'm fond of, posiwid. The purpose of a system is what it does, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's the flip side of an evolutionary principle uh, that I don't think has been well laid out. But basically, the creatures you get describe the niches that are there, hmm. Right. If a niche is there, it's going to get filled by selection. Mm. And whatever pharma started out as, there's an obvious niche that it has evolved to. It has mastered, right? And the niche niche is how to create demand for products, right? Demand for pharma's products are very rarely generated by health. Demand is generated by ill health. And so, you know, I would expect in a world where pharma had gained undue influence over our scientific viewpoint, that prevention would fall by the wayside. I would expect that um, the contribution of a very well thought out diet Mm -hmm. would fall to the wayside in favor of um, advice that actually renders vulnerabilities. And um, a friend of mine has recently been beating the drum in some uh, offline conversations about the possibility that the advice we have all gotten about the danger of iron deficiency is actually flipped on its head. Yep. Um, I would expect pharma not to be in favor of um, life habits that generate happiness, satisfaction, etc. And in thinking about this, okay, I've described a kind of a dystopian world in which yeah. this thing has evolved to interrupt these processes that make people need less pharmaceutical drugs. On the other hand, when I think back through the pandemic, you know, there was a moment at which I realized this isn't just wrong advice. It's the inverse of right advice. And in my mind, when I think about this, I, I think about the images of signs closing off trails, outdoor trails because of the pandemic. Mm sand poured into skate parks where children might have done something that would have occupied them and made them feel good and gotten them in the sun and right just the idea that if it was good for you something opposed it right what it wanted you to do was go inside where you wouldn't make enough vitamin d or you'd be confined with anybody else who had the virus it didn't want you to treat until 
you got really sick, at which point viral diseases aren't treatable. Right. Right. It gave you every piece of bad advice in the book. And it demonized anybody who noticed. Right. That does sound like a. Well, here's the thing. In evolutionary biology, we would draw a distinction between a parasite. You might say pharma has evolved into a parasite that is draining health from the system uh, for its own purposes. But then there's another term, a parasitoid. A parasitoid is a parasite that kills you. I was going to say a predator. Yeah. I, I was going to use the term predator. It, it, it's more than that because they are. It, there is death that's resulting. A lot of death that's resulting. And what I'm wondering, you know, look, one has to be careful with thoughts like this mm -hmm. because you have to figure out how to falsify it. But I have watched science come apart. Yeah. Right. Biological science is no healthier than what you've seen in medicine. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, you can't very well have do-gooders over in science testing bullshit marketing claims yep. and discovering that they're not true and discovering that what you really probably ought to do is go to the skate park or take a hike and definitely get some sun and maybe sunscreen is something you want to use very sparingly. Yep. Right? You can't have people doing that. And so you more or less have to um, neuter the capacity of science to prove that you're lying. And that describes what has happened inside of the university system, right? The yes. puppets who are dressed as doctors inside of medicine are dressed as scientists inside the R1 universities. And it is a lethal danger to civilization. Yes. I don't know how much of it's pharma, but it's clearly a kind of spreading corruption. But they were, the system that you just described, right, that you would imagine it would be constructed with these features. I mean, you're literally describing the system we're living in, right? And, yep. and then you consider the amount of people who are employed in that system who might not recognize the system in the way that you just described it. And, you know, one point I wanted to make, this is going to be like the... Not another third rail of a topic, but you know, when you talk about that system that has literally an incentive to create a population that is ill, right, and to make sure that all of the things that can make you well and healthy and happy um, are not as what is advised, you know, I, I, you know, from what I, you know, what I learned about the COVID vaccines, not only I learned about Reaper, but it also led me to studying childhood vaccines. And when you look at the history and the science that supports those vaccines, you learn some really, really uncomfortable facts. And I would say one of the most glaring is the wealth of data showing the absolute explosion in chronic illness that's coincident with the explosion in the childhood vaccine schedule. And so that to me is one of the, of all of the things that we've already kind of talked about, Brett. I mean, the things that I'm learning when I say that I'm estranged, I'm lost. I don't, I don't you know, because everything that I thought to be true or at least had faith in that was operating, you know, with principles that I hold dear, you find that that's not the case. And it's very disorienting. Um, and then to find 
what you think has been settled science, which is this, the, the, you know, the overwhelming benefit of childhood vaccines, you find that that's actually, that's got some f pretty flimsy data to support. And it has very disturbing data that's suppressed. And the, but the point that I wanted to make is that we have so much chronic disease in this country at, at rates that you didn't see in the 70s and 60s. I mean, there's numerous reasons, right? Our, our diets have gotten worse and uh, things like that. But the, 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 fit, the mechanisms of those vaccines and what's in them and how they really do that we've shown how they can cause chronic diseases, autism and ADHD and all sorts of things. I know this is a troubling topic for people because, you know, how much can you bring someone along? Like I, I've come along slowly here, but, but I keep discovering this system at work. So this is a, this is a very important, it is an uncomfortable topic, you know, um, but let's take a different version of it. Okay. Okay. I came to an understanding that something about the ivermectin story didn't add up at all. And I said so, and Heather had spotted it. We followed that road. We discovered what you and I have been talking about. I was very late to apply what I had learned about ivermectin and the distortion field surrounding it to hydroxychloroquine. Hmm. Right? So were we. We were too a little bit. Yeah. It's funny. I just, and you know, at the point that I got to that, right, at the point that something woke me up that I needed to actually refigure what I had thought about it because everything I had learned about ivermectin meant that I didn't know anything actual about hydroxychloroquine. And then, of course, it takes nothing to discover that what happened to hydroxychloroquine was purely political, right? Um. It was identical, but to, I, 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 you know, I've yeah. made the statement, Brett, that, um, you know, I wrote the book, the war on ivermectin, but there's another, you could write the war on hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it, it's it would be write. the same book and the same, same, same tactics, same playbook. You're right. There was some more political, there was a, there was political a political dimension factor, because dimension, of Trump. Yes. Right. Right. Um, political dimension because of Trump. And you tell me if I've got it wrong, but I think, uh, maybe just because ivermectin is, uh, so unusually non-toxic, right? They didn't kill people with it. Well, that, that you brought, you brought up the point that I was just wanted to make, and I was, I'm glad you made the point. Is that you know when you look, so going back to what we were discussing earlier about some of these manipulations in the trials, and you look at how they designed ivermectin trials to fail. Their main tactic, so they had, they used about four or five, and I'll just list them. So one we already talked about, right, which is this ridiculous, unprecedented, unprecedented dosing limit, right, to the, these patients. So as soon as you hit a certain weight, you're not getting any more ivermectin. So underdosing, you know, the highest risk. The other is obviously treating as late into the disease as possible. So they would enroll patients up to 14 days after first symptoms, which I can't say without laughing. Um they use the lowest dose possible that they could get away with for the shortest duration. Um, you know, no trial of ivermectin, you know, for a long time ever used five days. I've never heard of an antiviral. There's no antiviral out there that's ever used for less than five days. And so it's, mm. it's the lowest dose, starting late, mildest patients, uh, you know, capping the dosing limit. Um, and then you obviously, fat. what's that? You forgot fat. I mean, uh, uh, 
Oh, the advice and, and taking on an empty stomach. Is that what you're going to say? Or, or, or yeah, the, that, yeah, that this, this drug, because the typical use of it is for parasites where you want the drug active in the gut, right? Yeah. In such a circumstance, um, taking it on an empty stomach might make sense. Right. But if what you want to do is have it be absorbed, you want to do exactly the opposite. It ha it's fat soluble and you need, you need therefore to take it with something that has fat in it. And they took great care to always tell people in those, in the big six trials to take it on an empty stomach. Um, and then, and then they did a phenomenal job of making sure that the control group had abundant access to ivermectin. So, so a lot of right. these trials, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I'd laugh and say, you know, it's pretty hard to prove that ivermectin is better than ivermectin, right? And, and they yeah. knew that, <laughs> right? Um, but right. You know, another, another egregious violation yeah, of but, uh, the philosophy of science. But if yeah, the placebo group those things, has access. Yeah. But, they, you know, they yeah. pulled those same... Um, the same six tactics over and over and over again. And, but, but, but to the, to the topic, right? So I've long made that contrast. So the tactics they used to prove that ivermectin didn't work was everything was about lowering, 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 shortest duration, lowest dose, empty stomach, right? Because there was a phenomenal dose response to ivermectin, which is actually one of the pillars to support the efficacy of a medicine. If you're right, it's the you, thing that makes you know that it's not a statistical exactly. anomaly. Exactly, as you increase dose, they get better faster. Viral clearance is fast, you know. And so we saw, so we knew there was a dose response. And then the other thing about ivermectin, which is the point you were going to make, is that it's really hard to take a toxic dose. I mean, first of all, in a, in a massive review done by a French toxicologist, he came to the conclusion after reviewing the entire literature of ivermectin that no one has actually ever died uh, from ivermectin. There, you know, no proven case was actually ever, um, he felt, provided credible evidence that ivermectin was the cause of death. Now, there have been massive accidental overdoses, 100,000 times normal dose. People do get sick, but it's self-limited. They go to the hospital, they're a little bit neurologic toxic, you know, confused, disoriented, and they've all recovered. Hydroxychloroquine, on the other hand, does have an upper limit. And what do you know, Brett, in that system that you described, what do you know? How did they do that big trial of hydroxychloroquine? They literally used one of the highest doses, sublethal, that you knew was going to make these patients toxic. And they showed that people who got hydroxychloroquine did worse. Yep. They couldn't yeah, do that man. with ivermectin. If they tried that, people would have gotten better so fast. <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that's interesting that these two drugs would have resulted in a different, you know, pharma had to play a different game. Yep. With hydroxychloroquine. But nonetheless, the point is, it took me a long time. My point is that it took me a long time to go back and rethink hydroxychloroquine for no obvious reason. It just didn't occur to me that I was harboring something that felt like it was based on evidence that actually, once I knew what had happened to the so-called evidence in the ivermectin case, of course, I should have gone back yep. immediately. Um, but I think a lot of people are stuck in that state where they know something was wrong here, but they haven't gone back and said, well, then wait a minute. Where do I need a fresh sheet of paper? You know, so, Brett, like you said um, that you surprised yourself, I think, in that what you learned about ivermectin, you didn't kind of immediately apply and scrutinize hydroxychloroquine, which those lessons should have taught you to ask those questions of hydroxychloroquine. And the same thing happened to us. You know, I would say with Paul and I and hydroxychloroquine in the beginning, 
we both put a lot of value in the randomized controlled trials published in the high impact journals, which all concluded that it was ineffective. And we put a lot of weight on those trials for a while. Like Paul would not recommend hydroxychloroquine. I, I came around a little sooner than Paul because I, I actually, this is a great, I would love to have a discussion on the differences between ob observational controlled trials and randomized controlled trials, but they're highly valid. Uh, observational controlled trials, I mean, yes, you do have to be careful on how you interpret them, but as a body of evidence, they're equal in, in their accuracy to randomized controlled trials. And, and when you saw the, the, the breadth of trials of hydroxychloroquine and the summary analyses of them, they all pointed to efficacy. And I was impressed with the total body of evidence. Paul put a little bit more, or he held on to putting a little bit more value on the high impact journal randomized controlled trials. And he held that out as, you know, and I think that dissuade him from recommending it. But, you know, it took us a little while after ivermectin to realize that they pulled the same stuff with hydroxychloroquine. And, and I will tell you, you know what, you know what I think finally turned us and Paul? was actually chapter one of Bobby Kennedy's book, where he mm. it out. I mean, he tells, you know, that first chapter, I mean, he tells the story of what happened to hydroxychloroquine. And, and, and when we read, you know, Paul became fully convinced then that we'd been, we'd been lied to about hydroxychloroquine. And we had, we had believed those lies for longer than we should have. And, you know, Harvey Risch and Peter McCullough and you know, a lot of the folks around the world who knew hydroxychloroquine was working, you know, I think they, they were disappointed in us that we hadn't, that it took us a while to, to get behind hydroxychloroquine. And, um, you know, and, and I've apologized to them. I said, I'm sorry, we were so slow to figure that out. And, it, you know, but that, that had really big implications. I mean, that, that's also a massive loss of life around burying the efficacy of that drug. And, and in fact, I think that created more harm than ivermectin because it was earlier. Ivermectin was not really a strong candidate early on. Um, and some people, you know, there, there were a few who knew that was a strong candidate. People like Robert Malone knew. Uh, Robert had done, you know, years with he and his wife consulting around um, identifying repurposed drug candidates for, for different pandemics and Ebola. And uh, he, they, in, in some of their through, throughput sequencing, they'd identified ivermectin as um, number one, I think, against Ebola. Um, and so he knew a lot about repurposed drugs and he, he, he knew all this stuff. Um, but yeah, but no, but I guess my point was that hydroxychloroquine had that been deployed systematically in the prevention and treatment as it should have been from early on, it, that would have really saved the most lives because it was 2020. It was right at the outset. We had something that worked right at the outset. And, you know. Something in which we already had the manufacturing capacity oh. to produce it in large quantities. Yeah. it's um, So at at one level, you have to look at this and try to extract the meta lessons. Yeah. Something that I still find it bizarre how comfortable it apparently is uh, depriving people of life-saving information and drugs. Something decided to derail the right path for reasons that we can get back to in a second. But there's also something about the lesson, the sociological lesson here. You are finding yourself retraining in medicine, ironically, because you're now freed from the very subtle 
controlling forces that exist inside the institutional structure of medicine. Yep. I've had the same experience in science where I find my colleagues inside the system are constrained by things they don't even see mm. in terms of what the bounds of responsible thought are. And once you leave the system, it becomes clear how much nonsense is circulating. Um, and so, you know, the irony is we've got these big hospitals full of everything you would need to practice medicine and these big, beautiful medical schools that are perfectly set up to train doctors mm -hmm. to think scientifically and to treat their patients. Um, and because this has all been captured and corrupted by pharma or whatever other force, and I, you know, it's at least pharma, maybe it's something beyond that too. All of these structures don't work. They're actually counterproductive. And you have this odd fact, you know, the, the people that you named, you know, McCullough and Malone and you and Merrick and uh, Cariotti and, yep. you know, we could go on and on, Cole. All of these people have been cast out, portrayed as incompetent, and they're the only people that you can actually trust to give you an honest evaluation of the medical wisdom of something or the medical meaning of some pattern because they've already paid the price, right? Yep. You have to stare down the accusations and then yes, it does terrible things to you. But at the point that it's done the terrible things, it's said, you know, literally, uh, gee, I wonder if uh, Pierre Corey might be schizophrenic if mm. that could explain why he thinks ivermectin works, right? Once the system starts deploying that kind of outrageous slander against you, then you are actually free to look at the quality of the studies, to look at the quality of the products, to look at the likelihood of these things improving health, to look at the, um, the obvious remedies that are sitting right in front of us that carry almost no risk and have huge potential upside like vitamin D. Yeah. And you can just simply say what is apparently true. Now, it's interesting that you, you kind of you, that you had this, you have the same experience, right? You had to leave a system of science. And I use the same term you use. I, I call them system docs. You know, the patients who come to my clinic, the leading edge clinic, by the way, which is what we've called it. <laughs> um, you know, all of them have journeyed through the system and they've seen all the doctors and in particular around vaccine injury and long haul COVID, um, you know, you're right. The doctors in that system, they don't understand the constraints. They don't understand how much information is being deprived of. The, the, they, they're actively not being taught things. There are so many things they don't know. They don't know to question all the things that I now question, right? Going back to that concept we talked about, like now having had the experience of these three years, now not only did you say that I'm freed up to do all these different things, but I'm also, I've been trained now to ask questions at a level that I didn't know was that necessary. I had a lot more trust and now I have so little and all I have is, you can use the term skepticism or questions. And, and the, the amount of questions of where the answers are disturbing, so like the history of SSRIs and statins 
and any number of things that are literally pillars of allopathic medicine, you know, you're finding that we've been far too trusting of that system of medicine. And, and so, yeah, not only am I free to practice what I think is good medicine now, um, and I can draw from so many different disciplines and approaches and mechanisms, and many of which are extremely safe. That's also the problem, right? Um, because if it's really safe and effective, uh, they don't want you to know about it. And, and so it, it is a very freeing thing, but also I'm, I'm intellectually free. I'm, I'm much more inspired and questioning and open-minded. I'm open-minded yeah. to the point I've never been. Like literally, Brett, I mean, I hated vitamins before. I would, you know why I hated them? And when I say hate, that's a strong word. I, I, I was very troubled by the, the billion-dollar industry in, in peddling vitamins, that, which I didn't think were really adding to the health of people. And I'm wrong about that, actually. I'm not saying all vitamins are necessary. Uh, I, th I do think they're overused you know, in generally healthy people. But I was sick of reading trials showing that vitamins were ineffective. Like The, the literature is so full of them. I was just like, enough with vitamins. Can we stop? They don't work. They're not good yeah. for anything. That's literally what I used to think. And, and even around some therapy, you know, you know, the way alternative, you know, the alternative practitioners are presented to allopaths. I mean, allopaths are told we we're, we're given this arrogance and these egos, right? That like, we have the best science in medicine, like a chiropractor is some lower form of practitioner or, or even an osteopath or, or any other discipline is less than we are. And actually I'm finding there's another one. I actually think the opposite is true. Some of the doctors that I'm now working with and learning from are unbelievably effective at helping people preserve their health, treating illness in really safe uh, ways using combinations of therapies. I, I would I would have thought were uncredible before. And um, yep. I hope I hope my transformation <laughs> happens to a lot more because. Like, like we said before, I mean, this country is going to need a lot more. But we need the, the system of science and medical sciences is broken. It's been captured. And um, people, we need to free more physicians from that system. They have to know they have to be freed from that system. And we have to preserve, uh, I think, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't want to get really dark here, but I, we do have to preserve private practice <laughs> because, yep. because, Brett, you know, if that system that you described, right? Like, what is your prediction if suddenly people flee the system and go into private practice and and start doing things like I'm doing? Oh goodness! The, the, what's the reaction there? What, how is the system going to correct that? That's well, a scary thought. I, uh, you know, you you and I are both uh, liberals, and yeah. three years ago, I thought single payer was a great idea. I wrote a thesis right. in graduate school, <laughs> basically describing Medicare for all. That's literally yeah. what I wrote at the end of my master's degree in public health. And when I, it pains me to think about that. It's really right. humbling mean, to think about that. It, it's troubling because, I mean, I'm not even sure. I think some of my listeners are going to have to listen very carefully to what I have to say. I am terrified of things like single payer at this point yes. because I understand the degree of capture that we face and the degree of power that that gives uh, entities that are not interested in your health over the, uh, the practitioners. Doesn't mean that there is not, 
you know, were we to be able to rescue our governmental structure or build a different one that was resistant to capture, it doesn't mean there wouldn't be value in thinking about whether or not a single payer system worked better than what we've got. Yeah. But given the level of capture, I'm interested in uh, changing the balance of power and having it be placed back in the hands of doctors who can handle it. Um, and I now realize that all sorts of things, you know, um, insurance of any kind, whether it be a governmental program or private, uh, the idea of standard of care, right? All of these things become weaponizable. Yes. And the degree to which whatever it is that's doing the weaponizing is apparently comfortable with the atrogenic harm yes. is spectacular. So... I want to kind of emphasize something you said, because you're, you're right. I think you use single payer. If you look at the structure and you look at it as a system, there are attractions, right? There are efficiencies. There's some comprehensiveness to it. There's more inclusive. I mean, there are real strengths that would on paper draw you towards a, a single payer. And that's why I say it pains me when I think back to what I wrote when I was 27 years old, because the thing that I didn't understand was what you talked about, which is the fact that our system has been captured. If you make it single payer, you're just giving them more power and control to really hurt. It's actually bad for our health. And and I would also want to make the wider point, um, Brett, this is even bigger than medicine, which is one of the lessons I've learned in COVID is the more you concentrate the power in a single entity, or at a certain level, for instance, the federal government or the executive branch, the more that's concentrated, the more you put yourself at risk to that capture. And, and that really the answer is decentralizing. If that's the only way to protect from that overwhelming concentration of, because if you put your, like, like you put all your eggs in one basket and that basket gets stolen, you're out of luck. Right. And, and, you know, and that's that almost has political implications, right? So for me, like, like I'll give you another thing that I've I've had to rethink. Like, it's almost like I've had to rethink how I understood science, society, and life, and some of the belief. Like, for instance, you said that we're both liberals. So, in in a very simplistic way, I kind of always believed in what I thought was good government. I actually thought government could be good, and that it really was necessary to level the playing field. And I and, and I and I sort of look back at some of the major policy uh, improvements of last century and, I, and you know, where, where you didn't have such a polarized society and all that. I mean, I thought government did some really important things last century. And and I still believed I had a concept that that could still be possible. But now I've had to almost rethink my political philosophy because now government is not government anymore. Right. It, it, it's 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 really controlled by corporations. And so. So, you know, and, and so this, I, I don't know if, if, you, if you want to go political here, but what's interesting to me, so like you use the example of those doctors still in the system. They don't know how they're being constrained. They don't know how their thoughts and the information is being censored. Um, I had a recent experience where um, some in-laws came over and um, I have a couple in-laws who are like, you know, diehard liberals and they knew that I was liberal and they, you know, they're very upset that I hang out with Ron Johnson. Okay. <laughs> so like that, that, that kind of liberal. Right. And, yep. and, um, you know, as we were, I was having this 
talk, discussing them, I'm listening to them talk. And I realized that I'm talking to someone who doesn't understand that the government's been captured. And they were really highly supportive of the administration and the government. And it was weird. It's like, you know, I used to believe like you, but I can't anymore. And I feel like actually liberals have now they're not liberal anymore. Like they're literally supporting corporations. They, it's they very are, strange. They are captured in a way rather like doctors who don't yes. realize that they've been captured. Yes. Right. And you know, the, there's no, there's no more dangerous belief than blue, no matter who. Yes. Right. You're placing trust in a system that has zero claim to be trustworthy. Yes. Correct. Right? None. So anyway, I, um, I'm glad you raised this. It, it, uh, it, uh, it brings us quite naturally to, uh, to, uh, the Odyssey, which mm. is a, a little, yeah. a little book. And <laughs> the end of the Odyssey, um, uh, Odysseus returns to the manor, you will recall. And, um, he, uh, he, goes into the manor, you know, dressed in an inconspicuous, I think like a vagrant and strings the bow and lays waste to the captors of the manor. And I think the point is, this is, this is not a liberal or conservative point. This Mm -hmm. is a patriotic point. Yes. It is the moment at which, um, Odysseus needs to string the bow and retake the manor so that we can have something like good governance. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, many of us have received an incredible education uh, inadvertently and very painfully during COVID at what has actually um, dressed itself as if it was our government, but is actually acting against our interests. Yeah. And it is that moment. So sorry for the di- digression. No, but I want to say one more thing on that digression because you talk about the manner and, and stringing the bow. Um, you know, I have to say, so like my confusion and my stances on my thoughts towards government and politics, you know, have, have also been disrupted with this pandemic and learning what I've learned. But you know, what was really kind of a, a very warm experience for me. And I'm just going to speak plainly about it. But, you know, I, I went to Bobby Kennedy's opening, you know, the opening of his campaign and that speech, that speech, Brett, I mean, Wow, I, I feel like I'm going to get tears. <laughs> Literally, I'm right. really emotional about it, man, because I listened to that guy, and I just was like, I, I, I was so drawn to his message and his vision and his solutions. Like, he gets it. He gets mm-hmm. it in, in a way that's so deep, and he's so pragmatic and studied. And, like, I was extremely moved. He reminded me what I believed in. You know, he reminded me like where I came from and, and what I really think is true and right. And I, I, I found it a very inspirational and, and very hopeful. I hadn't had hope like that. I haven't felt true hope. I felt a lot of despair, to be honest, Brad. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of down about a lot of stuff because this war has been hard. And it's yeah. and I see so much damage and destruction and it's getting worse. And. And I don't know, I, I don't want to make this about Bobby, but I, I do want to say that, like, for me personally, it was a very um, restorative experience. And um, So I'm actually thrilled that uh, that you saw that as the right follow-on point to my bizarre digression into the Odyssey. 
because it's exactly what I'm talking about. There you go. Right? There you and, go. And uh, not only is it exactly, I've tweeted out Odysseus 24 a couple times. <laughs> Nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about, <laughs> right? It gets no traction. It doesn't land on anything that anybody recognizes. But this is exactly what I'm thinking is that, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to synonymize it with Bobby Kennedy, mm -hmm. but he is certainly what I see in my mind when I look at uh, Odysseus returning to the manor and stringing the bow. Yep. Right? Yep. This is somebody who understood what we were, who has paid a terrible personal price and is in a position because he's so honorable and thoughtful and insightful mm -hmm. um, to, to restore the world that no longer is. And I will also say not only do I find his vision quite compelling, but I am deeply heartened by the extent to which it resonates across ideological lines. Mm. Right? Yes. He is, he is a liberal like you and yes. I are. He's in the exiled from the blue team group of liberals, of which there are quite a number. Um, but the degree to which people who see themselves as part of the red team can hear what Bobby Kennedy is saying Absolutely. and resonate with it is very heartening. Yes. So I'm excited about it too. Me too. Me too. For sure. Wow. Um, if I can go back, you mentioned uh, the vaccine schedule and the uh, explosion in chronic disease. I also see this the same way. I don't know what the truth is of the vaccine schedule and its relevance or the explosion in the vaccine schedule and its relevance to the explosion in chronic disease. But I do know that the implication of the explosion in chronic disease implicates environmental exposures. Yes. And for any of the people who so smugly declare that it is not the vaccines, fine. Why are you not obsessed with figuring out what it is? Mm-hmm. Right? Because the point is you're talking about generations yet unmaimed who we could save yes. if we can figure out what it is. And if it's yes. not the vaccines, great. Let's rule them out and let's figure out what else is doing it and let's stop doing it because you're talking about crippling people. Yes. And so anyway, I, you but, know. But even bigger, I, I want to make a subtle, uh, besides the crippling, you know, because we were talking, Brett, about the you know, like the, the system and what are those incentives? Like, how would that system behave, you know, <laughs> which is really the opposite of our health. But, you know, it's creating literally customers for life because those are chronic conditions that they have medicines for. And God, right. and so, you know, you give someone, let's say, chronic severe asthma or allergies or ADHD or autism. I mean, the, the, that, that's... It, it's a huge population of patients that you're creating over a lifetime. And, and that's as disturbing to think about as anything. 
It's mm. physiological brand loyalty, <laughs> right? They are oh, creating <laughs> customers. They are creating captive customers. Ugh. And it's, it's, um, you know, look, I'm, I, I don't know to what extent this is a conscious thing that pharma does. I know that there will be elements of it that are highly conscious and there will be other elements where the system doesn't even understand what it has evolved to do. Right. It just enriches people who advance the ball uh, at public expense. But um, the net effect is diabolical. Diabolical. It's diabolical. You're actually talking about not only just harming, maiming people. You're talking about, in many cases, maiming children. Yep. Right. And no healthy society can tolerate that. And we have tolerated it too long. I, I want to make a point about the, the dia about how diabolical it is. Cause here, here's another thought I have on is that the very extent of its evil and corruption and, and really the implications of it, how horrible those consequences are. I also think, somehow protects the system in a way because Brett to fully conceive of what we're talking about, being able to admit into your mind that there is a system that's being run by leaders who know these things and yet do these things anyway you then have to be able to countenance or consider the fact that there are literal sociopaths running industries and and I think, you know, for some, like, I can believe that now because I've seen that evil play out in COVID. I think before, I, I, I think I had a general sense that people are, I do think the average person is benevolent and, you know, is kind and or ca capable of it. And that I think there are few that are really capable of, of committing acts and, and behaving in a way where they know that the consequences of those actions can create immense amounts of death and disease. Um, I think those people are few, but, but they exist and they can get into power and they can convince others to do the same. And they, they have ways of rationalizing the psychology. I think there are many people complicit in that system that don't go home at night. I think they go home at night thinking they're part of a functioning system that is directed towards good objectives. And, and, and I think that's another lesson that we've learned that I think, I think for many people, like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I testified in um, the Wisconsin state legislature um, with a health, uh, a medical freedom group that was really concerned because the Wisconsin state um, department of health wanted to mandate the meningococcal vaccine, as well as the chickenpox vaccine. Um, we can skip the science on how just insanely terrible just the science to support those mandates. Just on a mandate alone, I'm sorry. There's just no – I'm done with mandates. So anyway, I was testifying, and luckily for the first time – or no, not the first time because Senator Johnson's committees were friendly to me. But this was a friendly committee. They actually knew my work. They knew my organization. And the chairman of the committee really wanted to hear from me. And the point is this, is that – they let me speak quite freely. And I, I kind of almost talked a little bit about what we've talked about in this conversation. I just said, like, what I've come to learn in COVID and the things that I've learned. And 
And then I described the un un unholy alliance that you and I started, you know, this podcast with. And and when I when I sketched out that unholy alliance, there was this one Democratic member, a leading Democratic member. And when it came time for her to ask questions, Brett, you could totally see that I had like you know, it was way too much for her. Like, she's like, yeah. you know, Dr. Corey, you're describing this grand conspiracy <laughs> between these and, and like she could not get it. And what was interesting is so and she said, so all of these people, you know, you're describing, so you're saying all of the doctors and all of the journalists and, you know, she, she, she basically wanted, she couldn't understand, she basically, she couldn't believe the system or the world that I was describing and she couldn't get her head around. And, and you know what? I corrected her. I said, no, I don't think all those people are evil. And as part of the conspiracy, I said, they're victims, they're victims of, of that information. I said, you know, cause it isn't that it's all part of history, but the, the bigger point was that like, you know, you have to be able to, you have to be able to, I guess, accept the idea that, that this kind of behavior can happen and our institutions and society can behave in this way. And I, I think for many people, they're not ready to accept that, that they're even after COVID their implicit faith and trust in the, the pillars and institutions of society have not been thoroughly shaken and or disrupted to the point that it should be. Well, you know, you raise a very important point. It's one I have learned to be careful, not only in how I speak about it, but how I think about it. And let me, let me convey to you the tool that I think does as good a job as, of solving this problem as anything. There are psychopaths out there. Mm-hmm. And the ones who are both devoid of moral constraints and insightful about things, the smart ones, do tend to ascend to um, powerful positions. Yes. And it doesn't take very many of them in such powerful positions to have a wildly disproportionate effect. Yes. But the important part is to realize how much emergent properties can stand in for actual collusion, mm. right? If you were to teleport onto this planet during the height of COVID and you were to find doctors telling patients, don't take ivermectin, don't consider having it around in case you're exposed, don't take anything early uh, should you have symptoms and do take this experimental therapeutic irrespective of the accelerated way in which it was tested, the small number of people on mm -hmm. whom it was tested, right? If you saw doctor after doctor dispensing the same advice, you could conclude, oh my God, these doctors don't care about their patients. But you know that's not true. Right? I know. You know that those doctors were in a very, an artificially created impossible bind that they couldn't solve. Yep. And many of them did a poor job with the puzzle they were handed. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't that these people didn't go into medicine for the right reasons or were 
cryptically sociopathic and correct you know none of those things were true the fact is something rearranged their incentives so they behaved on behalf of something that was de facto sociopathic yes and so what i do what i would encourage you to do and what i think we need to say to people like the person who questioned you on this panel is that we don't know the degree to which there is conspiratorial action we'd be fools to think it was zero but it could in fact be the minor fraction of a system in which people responding to their incentives do the bidding of something evil without being evil themselves and this is something people have known right the banality of evil yes. that concept is about the idea that normal people who aren't bad can be dragged into very bad things without the awareness that that has happened. I, I, I think I, history, yeah. your point is really well taken, and, and I, I would say that I agree with it. And, and, and you're right. I mean, the banality I and mean, good people are capable of participating in acts, uh, either unknowingly, um, that really uh, bring about great, great harm. And, um, you know, one of the thoughts I had in, in listening to what you just said, you know, those doctors, right, who were put in this really difficult position, I, I would think that there was almost a psychological incentive to believe the vaccines were safe and effective, right? Mm. So, so, I mean, if you want to start questioning and looking at the data around vaccines, you, you're going to make things quite difficult for yourself, meaning intellectually, morally, philosophically, right? I mean... So it's almost, I mean, that system, that train was barreling down that track, right? If you want to stay on the train, you know, I think, I think it would, there, I think there was some sort of site, you know, you, you want to believe that the system is behaving correctly, that the experts are giving good advice. And so don't question the advice because you're going to find out stuff about the system and your role in it. That's going to be very uncomfortable. Hmm. And I think, actually, if I look back at what I saw, it matches, it matches your description and it matches the following pattern. Doctors are told, we have safe and effective vaccines. They're the way out of this frightening pandemic. The doctors know safe and effective can't mean totally safe. Mm -hmm. And they're probably not fully effective but the doctors initially just as you and i didn't initially see how far off the portrayed picture was from what turned out to be the doctors all privately said to themselves you know every vaccine causes casualties mm -hmm. right but it's going to be a small number relative to the good that will be done. COVID is tearing the world apart. Um, and so what they did is they held their tongue about the discrepancy between the claim that these things were totally safe and what they privately believed about the level of safety, mm -hmm. which was tolerably safe. At the point that it became clear that they were not remotely tolerably safe and that they were being given to people who had no reason to be exposed to any risk at all, they had already started lying on behalf of the system. They thought they were telling a white lie. Yes. 
And in fact, they were telling a gargantuan lie, much bigger than they would have contemplated had they had the full picture to begin with. But at the point that you've done that, at the point that you've done the bidding of pharma at a cost to your patient's health, and then you start to get the sense of what might be lurking in the evidence, <clears throat> the instinct not to look at it has got to be quite strong because yeah. you don't want to know what you've been dragged into. There's no question. And that also, you know, what we just talked about, that really also explains the inability to talk about or treat vaccine injury. I mean, look, look at where we are with that, Brett. So you have academic medical centers around the country. Many of them created what they call long COVID clinics, and they're absolutely useless. It's endless referrals and testing. And unfortunately, the, the diagnostics around um, that, that guide therapies for these two, so the, di the, the testing is not very helpful. But so patients get a lot of tests, a lot of referrals. There's no treatments, right? There's no guidelines yet. I'm sure that's a market that they're going to explore. Actually, I do know that, right? Because the, the $1.2 billion that the government has already devoted to research into long COVID, um, uh, they apparently there's five trials that they've set up. Only one is ready to uh, enroll. They haven't enrolled a patient yet. So there's only one trial. And um, wait for it, Brett. Do you know what they're going to study? Paxlovid. You tell me, Doc. Paxlovid. Oh no! <laughs> so come on, guess you, you, Brett. You're better than that. You could have guessed that. I mean, I could have guessed. Talking I, about that system for an hour and a half. I guess we just maybe discovered the last little piece of my naive tank. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Brett. But but you know, my point is, um, being a specialist in treating COVID vaccine injury. Um, you know, my patients come to me after journeying through the system. And, and, you know, I would say the climate has changed. But in the beginning, those early vaccine injured, what they went through in terms of gaslighting and abandonment and outright, like, I mean, I have stories from my patients where literally when they tried to talk to the doctor about the vaccine injury, the doctors, I think it created such like, I think it was very disturbing for doctors because they didn't want to recognize that now people are showing up with these severe chronic disabilities and debilities and, and they actively fought against. Like, I remember one patient told me a story that when she was signing out of a doctor's office at the reception desk, the doctor actually came out there and told the patient, you don't need to schedule a follow-up, essentially telling the patient, don't come back. And, and not only that, so doctors were not writing vaccine injury in the chart for a long time. You remember, I mean, the political climate and the victimization around vaccine, I mean, that the, the height of the psychopathology around vaccines was, I mean, I will never forget that where we, what was happening in society. And now it's better now. It's better now. I think vaccine injury can be discussed. From what I know from doctors on the inside, it is written in charts. Um People, doctors are now talking to patients a little bit more. Now, they don't know how to treat it, um, you know, because, again, that that's the other <laughs> consequence, Brett. You know, when you talked about autonomy and that tight control and coercion, um, it's really scary because this novel disease of long COVID and vaccine injury is really complex. There's a number of pathophysiologic mechanisms. There's a whole host of potential therapies, and I am learning as I go. I'm, I'm, my protocol is ever shifting in how I approach these patients, but picture a doctor in the system right now who 
employed by some major health system who a vaccine injured patient comes and maybe they know our work, you know, and, and our protocol on the FLCCC website. Um, and let's say they want to try to employ, you know, they have a patient before them who's suffering and they're like, you know, well, there's this group who's done this work and they've put out this, this guide and maybe we can try a few things like that. For instance, ivermectin is, pro is the most effective drug I've found in those two syndromes. It doesn't work for everybody. And in some people, the, the benefits are modest, um, but far and away, it's the most successful. Um, I would say 70% of my patients with long COVID and vaccine injury um, are ivermectin responders. I'd say 70. And, and again, the, the responses vary, but that, that's the other implication. That's the other consequences of, of that change to the system is those doctors are waiting for a guideline. They're waiting for a society. And by the way, there's no society statements. There's no review papers on vaccine. It's literally verboten. The only people talking about it are like organizations like myself and, and, and similar organizations. And so, you know, the, the implications are, you know, but anyway, we were talking about like the psychology of the doctor. And I think that fueled the, the literal, and, and I heard, you know, descriptions of, you could see doctors were having a really tough time in, in countenancing and, and being able to see a vaccine per injured person for what they were, which is they were a consequence of that same doctor's behaviors. Well, um, that's, Certainly true. The I'm struggling. There's a couple directions to go from here. Uh, Heather and I did an episode a couple weeks back uh, in which we actually looked at the Nuremberg Code itself mm -hmm. and found that the COVID response appears to have violated not just informed consent, mm -hmm. a double violation because people were ill-informed as a result of propaganda and they were mandated and coerced. So it wasn't consent, but every single sub provision seems to have been violated too. And not in an in obvious way, it, it's glaring when mm -hmm. you look at it. Um, and so the, one of the provisions involves mental anguish and I must say that there are a lot of facts, if you paid attention to how the pandemic unfolded and the public health response and the coup against medicine and all of these things, there are these anomalies, right? Just very strange facts that are very hard to reconcile with any normal process. The most glaring of them, I think, the one that I stumble over uh, most forcefully is the gaslighting of the vaccine injured because these people without exception are people who did what they were told they were supposed yes. to do. And so the idea that if you were telling people you're morally bad, if you don't follow our advice and you don't get yourself so-called vaccinated with these so-called vaccines, and then somebody gets hurt, even if the vaccines had turned out to be very safe, which they did not. But if they had, and these injuries were vanishingly rare, we should be dealing with the people who have these injuries with nothing but compassion. Right. Right. These were people who were trying to do the right thing. You can't, you know, the idea that these are anti-vaxxers is laughable. These are people who got hurt because they took the vaccine. And whatever, to the extent that the argument was that the vaccines are our collective responsibility 
in order to get us out of COVID, which was nonsense from the get-go because they didn't block transmission or contraction and therefore couldn't be an effective tool against the pandemic. But to the extent that people accepted the argument that what they were doing was taking a small risk on behalf of the team, it is then our collective responsibility to take as good care of them as can be done in light of the fact that they got unlucky. That you right. that would be I think that situation is correct. I, I think that would have been the what you would think is the humane and ethical and appropriate response of a physician to an unfortunate, rare, you know, supposedly rare. But let me ask you a question. So what do you so maybe I'm interrupting. So that you're saying that would have been the correct and humane response. It's the, the, it's the absolutely natural consequence of the bullshit argument that was fed to us or rammed down our throats, right. right? That you have an obligation to get these things as a member of the team, right? So that means that to the extent that our obligation as members of the team came up bad for a small number of people because of bad luck, then those harms belong to all of us. Right. right? But, but let me ask you a question, Brett. The fact is, you're, you just used the hypothetical example of if they had been safe and just leaving a very tiny number. But the reality was that those numbers are massive. So right. how does that so would I so the fact that that's not what happened, do you think it was the massive numbers that that somehow influenced the the the, 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 be, the treatment and, and how they were treated by doctors? Nope. I think that we are, again, downstream of an industrial strength propaganda campaign mm. whose purpose is not anybody's well-being. It is the, I don't know, the uh, shareholder value of the corporations that produce these things. Yeah. And any level of propaganda and lying and distortion that enhances the position of these corporations uh, is tolerable to them for some reason. But I guess my point is an average person who bought the story ought to now look at the way the vaccine injured have been treated. And that ought to be enough to wake them up completely. Right. Yeah. If you are somebody who said, oh, these vaccines are safe. What does that mean? Perfectly safe? Yes, perfectly safe. Well, Everybody knows they weren't perfectly safe. Yep. So that means there are some vaccine injured people. Where is the place where these people are being compassionately embraced by the system, where we are trying to understand these very rare injuries and what might be done to alleviate them doesn't exist. Why? Because what exists in its place is a propaganda campaign of its own that adds insult to injury. Yes. You are psychologically torturing these injured people who were trying to do their part on behalf of a team because you told them that's what they had to do. And so my point is that is that is a sick system that would tell people this was their obligation as a member of a team. And then when it didn't work out, pretends that they're not sick. Right. It's diabolical. It's diabolical. And, you know, one of the phrases I keep using is it, it just seems like the world has gone mad and and it's i want to refer that you know the world went mad in COVID, and all these behaviors that we're talking about and i i agree with you i i, I attribute the madness that has descended upon all us is, is from unrelenting propaganda and censorship we've been sickened by the 
information that that we need in order to to live and live correctly and and in harmony right and and yet we're pro- the, the information is in poison we started talking about like at the level of the journals and all of this and you know that the, you brought up another point which is you know it was so bad the propaganda and censorship supporting this vaccine campaign was so horrible and powerful that you saw this phenomenon because you kind of touched on it where anyone close to the unvaccinated i would call them vaccine adjacent were attacked and and one example are people who got vaccinated and tried to speak up about their injuries they were literally immediately lumped in with the, you know, the, the ire and attacks were directed at them. And, you know, for me, one of the most memorable and heartbreaking examples, I don't know if you've heard of this case, but there was a, a professional uh, mountain bike racer, um, Kyle, I can't remember his last name, but he filmed himself in his car one day talking about how his career was over. He was really sick and he was crying because he had been trying to talk about his injury, not only for help, but also, I guess, to tell others. And he couldn't believe the amount of people attacking him and the amount of anger and ferocity directed at him for him just trying to talk about his experience. And, you know, that's how bad that got. You know, any, you know people who got vaccinated were being attacked. Well, it's... <laughs> I have... Uh become somewhat infamous for the catchphrase, it's worse than that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it's worse than that because on the one hand, you've got this mountain biker, and I I don't remember his name, but I do remember the case, who speaks out about just a fact of his life. Mm -hmm. He was a mountain biker. Now what is he, right? He doesn't know. He's understandably broken up about that. And what's more, you know, this has implications for his longevity and, you know, it's, it's a tragic case and it's, it is an exemplar of, of a pattern that is much more widespread. But the other thing, you probably saw Rav Aurora's recent piece about a, um, a, a journalist, I think an editor at a publication and the publication was decidedly, uh, enthusiastic about vaccines and mandates and the uh the editor had a severe vaccine injury an immediate one right and these things get much more difficult for us to grapple with when they're delayed right a delayed cancer for example the room to pretend that it's not downstream or the room for there to be statistical noise or whatever but this was a case where somebody had a uh, an immediate and intense uh, adverse event um, that was cardiac in nature. It was myocarditis, I believe. And anyway, the point is that person has apparently still not come forward, and the publication that they worked for hasn't acknowledged that it was championing these vaccines, and then right on their doorstep had uh, an event that ought to have caused them to think, hey, wait a minute, that seems pretty unlikely. If these events are vanishingly rare that one of our own would have had it, maybe we should look into how widespread they are. So anyway, my point is our impression in the public of how common these events are is downstream of a campaign 
to punish and intimidate people who've had these events so that they will talk about them as little as possible yeah. or not at all. Yeah. Which leaves the false impression that they were much safer than they actually were. Yeah. I mean, I also think, Brett, you know, when you bring up the example of that editor and that outlet or whatever news source that was, um, you know, not talking about it, that that seems very governmental and military censor. I mean, it seems like everyone got the memo in the media, thou shalt not speak ill of these vaccines. I mean, with very few exceptions, uh, most media sources never even brought up the possibility that these vaccines weren't safe. And, and you know, the, the, most, the most absurd and dystopian are the thousands and thousands of reports of young people dropping dead athletes, broadcasters on television, comedians on stage. I mean, all walks of life, many times caught on camera, young, healthy people out doing like once you're outside doing an activity, by the way, that's a pretty good comment on your underlying health. Okay, like, I mean, sick people are not doing what these people do, particularly athletes. And so you have these. Yeah. And then the ages. You know, I, I am an expert in sudden cardiac death it, as an ICU specialist. That was one of the, the, the patient populations I had to take care of, those that survived CPR. And it's, it's, it's so incredibly rare for young people to drop dead. And you have legions of newspaper reports, report after report after report after report of no antecedent event and the vaccine is never mentioned never once mentioned as a possibility and the consistency in the consistency under which that is true you know and i used to read those reports i literally would skim them to see if the journalist writing about this tragic and unexpected death of a young person a high schooler you know whatever the case is you know i was just waiting to see if they would just you know, unclear cause, maybe, you know, could it be the vaccines or there, there's no mention in any of those articles that's a vaccine. It's just a normal, rare occurrence. Now, I'm glad you bring this up. Uh, I've done a lot of thinking about it. The problem here, I believe, is also obviously downstream of the same propaganda campaign we've been talking about. Yeah. The problem is these events are extremely rare, naturally. The vigilance about finding these events and pointing to them is now unusually high. Mm -hmm. Right? So to the extent that this happens very rarely and you generally don't hear about it, but now it broadcasts an individual anomalous death broadcast to a much wider audience, one has to ask the question, is what I'm seeing an artifact of sampling a much larger population? Now, I don't believe it could be. And you, as an ICU specialist, are in a much better position to say that you believe mm -hmm. the level of this is unusual. However, here's where I think this goes. We have to be cautious because there will be deaths that we hear about that contribute to our sense that vaccines have created a, 
a lot of injuries in young people that actually are just anomalies. They may be some other environmental exposure to something novel, but maybe it's not the vaccine. But here's here's the, the important point. This isn't a tough question to study. No. Right? This is what science does. And if we were really interested in the question of, well, is there an anomalous pattern of young people dropping dead? There is. If there's that pattern and it is downstream of the vaccines, we can find out if we want to. And what we seem to be doing is avoiding finding out. That's absolutely correct. But let me speak to that, Brett, because in in my mind, that question has been soundly answered with data. And interestingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, it doesn't come out of the medical sciences, that data. That data is coming out of the life insurance industry. Mm. And Ed Dowd's work on this with his team I mean, when you hear these numbers, I mean, and and how that story broke and how that data came out was really interesting. You know, there was a a newspaper article, I can't time it, it it's probably over a year ago, where uh, a CEO of a life insurance company, One America, was apparently talking to a chamber of commerce. Like it was just a meeting at a chamber of commerce. And he lets it slip that they saw... I think it was either 38 or 40% rise in death claims in the age group from 18 to 64 from 2020 to 2021. So in one year, and he said in that same meeting that in his business, a 10% rise in mortality in that age group from one year to the next would be a statistically a one in 200 year event. That's how rare 10% is. And here he is telling a group of folks that this $100 billion or million-dollar company is saw a 38% rise. And the timing of the rise perfectly matches the vaccine rollout. Um, that, you know, the data showing how many people have lo- we've lost from the workforce, actually from death, is truly alarming. And so it's like we already know. I, I'm sorry, Brad. I, I mean, for me, those vaccines are a humanitarian catastrophe. They've they've caused oh. hundreds of thousands of deaths. And you're right, though. We we don't. No one's talking about it. Well, look, I don't disagree with you about what the most parsimonious interpretation of the evidence that I've seen is. I think it's quite clear. But the point I'm trying to make is, to the extent there are many people out there who still don't believe there is a pattern. Mm-hmm. There ought to be an obsession with doing the most deliberate and careful study possible to discover yeah. the nature of that pattern, right? We're still giving these shots to people. I can't understand that. We're still giving these shots to young people, right? That couldn't be a more medically irresponsible thing to do if it tried healthy young people. Why would you give them a shot for a disease that does not put them at substantial risk? Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm not doubting. Yeah, I'm no. not doubting the evidence from the right. insurance industry. What I'm doubting is our ability to look at the reports of sudden death in people and to know the contribution of 
vaccines versus the contribution of the level of interest. Yeah, I, and right? I appreciate that point. I mean, that you're right. Anybody should be asking the question. Yep. We should be asking a question. And like we ask lots of questions in science, we have ways of answering it. And there's a process in which to do it. And it's not being done. We have entire institutions full of people who trained to be able to answer such questions, and we are not pointing them at this one. Nope. Which is shocking. Nope. All right. So I want to, we're going to wrap up here soon. Cool. I I have two points I want to get on the table and get your reaction to before we do that. Great. One of them is just an interesting pattern. Okay. You now find yourself... In private practice, you were a, a, a hospital, a teaching hospital doc, an academic. You now find yourself in private practice, strangely liberated to think about therapies you wouldn't have considered before, to retrain yourself uh, free from the influence of administrators and yep. uh, standards and all of that, which it turns out were much more destructive than you had known. That's fascinating. Heather and I have seen the same pattern as um, outsiders to academia, now free to think. I mean, we were thought independently before, and that's probably why we got <laughs> kicked out. But, um, but nonetheless, now uh, the thing that threatens us are, you know, anonymous tech giants that yes. don't like us speaking out of turn because it's very inconvenient to have evolutionary biology PhDs uh, calling bullshit on epidemiologists and mm-hmm. vaccinologists, right? Inconvenient. So, you know, tech is now trying to exert its influence. But nonetheless, outside of the system, we have a degree of freedom that is uh, anomalous. You mentioned at the top of the podcast that um, our mainstream media sources are owned by a tiny number of corporations, which artificially synchronizes their viewpoint. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, their ability to garner audience has plummeted Mm -hmm. and that hasn't gone away. It's migrated to this unregulated, uh, low production value landscape of podcasts and man caves and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, doing your own news broadcast from your living room or whatever. And the point is, that's not really the right place to be doing it, much as the right place for you to be doing what you do, Doc, is in a hospital yeah. in which, you know, yeah. the, the the system and the equipment and all of that is already there and, and the system for getting it paid for and all is built. The right place to study science and to talk about it is not podcasts, it's universities, and they exist, but we're outside of them. Anyway, my point is the structures are now a good proxy for the corruption. Yeah. Right? You can look at the university buildings and think, oh, they're very pretty. It's interesting that science doesn't work in there anymore, right? You can go to CNN and you can say, oh, that looks like a, a humming newsroom there. That looks like a great place for them to figure out what the hell is going on and to tell the public. But that's not what they do. No. Right. You know, that is more likely to happen, uh, you know, in Joe Rogan's studio. Yep. So anyway, everybody is doing the job that they're supposed to be doing to the extent that those of us who care about these jobs are still doing them. We're doing them in places that don't make sense. Right. We've been it's like a whole civilization in exile. 
right? Where yes, uh, good point. Yeah, and it's uh, anyway. I I guess it just it's hopeful to me because the point is it isn't like they snuffed us out. They just uh, set us free yeah. and forced us to source our own equipment. Yeah, I, no, I, I I agree with that. I mean, um, I've, I've sometimes made jokes that I've you know I've been excommunicated from medicine, um, and um, and you're right, we we are sort of exiles, but. You know, it's an interesting dynamic because our numbers are growing. You know, I mean, you and I fit. I mean, you before me. I mean, your career, your academic career, literally ended, and you were excommunicated. And you know, so we really were exiled. But I think that the audience, the the average citizen, you know, they are coming to to listen more to people like you and me. And you know, yeah, it's it's. I, I have hope there because that's the answer, right? And I like—I love that you just said like the, the structures are synonymous with the, or emblematic of the corruption, right? I mean, you look at a university, you look at a newsroom, like that's literally a propaganda, uh, you know, headquarters. That's where they create the day's narratives, right? And so, and 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 for people to be leaving those structures and institutions, um, it gives me hope, because it really, when the system's been captured, we need a parallel system. And, and that's why we kind of touched on the we want private practice to continue and we, we need freedom. We need we need a space to freely discuss things and you need people who are free to tell the news like it really is you know, and what's really happening in the world. And and um, I, I'm happy to see that's happening. Yeah, I think uh, and maybe we'll just leave it here. But I think the message of it is the power that was brought to bear to stamp out our ability to do a scientific analysis, to reach an audience and tell them what we thought, to practice uh, responsible medicine, to respond to emerging patterns and sort through them. The power that was brought to bear was absolutely industrial strength, military grade, it was ferocious, and the degree to which it failed to stamp out mm. the actual discussion uh, is, I think, remarkable and quite hopeful. In other words, I do think the small collection of dissidents that did find their way to speak out about the absurdity of our COVID response um, upended the negative, the, the narrative. And, yeah. and most, you know, most people are not awake. Right. But many people are at least somewhat awake. Yeah. And that is, that's a very hopeful sign. It's very hard to stamp out apparently. And hopefully only more, we will see more wake up over time. Yeah. My the point I would add to that is, you're right. I mean, that industrial strength and trying to snuff it out, they did not succeed, number one. And I think the brazenness and overreach of their attempts um, might even turn and backfire on them because of mm -hmm. the amount of people that they've awakened. I mean, Brett, I don't know that I would have woken up if they hadn't done this much. You know, so much brazen departures from science and pragmatism. That, that had to make me question, why is this happening? Who is doing this? And why would they possibly do this? I mean, that, 
that awoke that woke me up and and i and so many people and so i i think armed with that new knowledge it, it'd be interesting to see where the future heads yep i agree with you and i think everybody has that moment where they see something that they just can't unsee yeah and for many of us it was covid yep and uh our you know our numbers are growing and i think it's time to string the bow yes love it great way to <clears throat> great way to end but brett great way to all end. right uh, dr pierre Corey. um it has been a real pleasure your book is it it is available already yeah it's in bookstores and on amazon and I just heard from a friend that they went to buy a book and it was sold out at their bookstore at Santa Barbara. So I was pretty happy to hear that news. <laughs> That's great news. Uh, the title of the book is, is The War on Ivermectin. Yes. The War on Ivermectin. Um, for people, and there will be many, who have heard you on Dark Horse and realized that they might need your help for either long COVID or a vaccine injury or just simply to get medical care that is out from under the thumb of pharma and yeah. Fauci. Um, where do they find you? Yeah, we, we also take care of general medicine patients. You know, we're happy to support you with uh, non-conflicted guidance. <laughs> and that's at uh, the easiest is drpierrecorey.com, drpierrecorey.com, um, or just look up my name with the Leading Edge Clinic. If you just look up my name, it's going to be hard to find my clinic. <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff that comes up, Brad. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff that comes up. And I must say, I have Googled uh, your name and uh, I, something's got its thumb on the scales. So anyway, the, yeah, I do think. Um, the, uh, the URL was D-R-K-O-R-Y. No, D-R-P-I-E-R-R-E-K-O-R-Y.com. So DrPierreCorey.com. DrPierreCorey.com. All right. The War on Ivermectin. This has been an excellent conversation. I'm already looking forward to our next one. Uh, best of luck with the book. And... Um, Anyway, thank you for uh, for doing this. Brad, all I can say is, you know, thank you for your support, for your audience. I, I love the conversation and, and and really thank you for your brotherhood in, in, in this journey. It's been um, it's been rough. Yeah, it has been rough. Well, uh, it's been an honor to fight shoulder to shoulder with definitely, you. Definitely. Definitely. Thanks. Right. Ciao. Ciao.